This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their multivitamin elite, their whey protein, the super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Doc Pete Chambers. Now, Doc has an incredible story from enlisting in the regular military, transitioning to reserves as he pursued a career in medicine, his re-enlistment after 9-11, and his journey into special forces. Now, after almost 40 years in the army, he was forced out after defending his men and women against the vaccine mandates. And I have held a very centric view on this whole issue during the pandemic. And as we emerge out the other side, I'm continually disgusted at the men and women that held the front line that were then terminated purely on their stance on the vaccine. And Doc has become one of the important voices that we need to hear on this topic. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 650 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Doc Pete Chambers. Enjoy. Well, Doc, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Hey, it's great to be here, James. Uh, you've had some great guys on. I've got to listen to a few friends of mine, Tim Kennedy and some others. It's nice to be in that crowd. Absolutely. So, so, consider myself honored. Well, you've got some amazing peers, especially in the Green Beret community. I mean, you talk about some of the the the, the people that understand diplomacy and interaction with other humans i think the green berets that's the skill set that i always find you know amazing to listen to yeah it was uh general came through when i was in the 18 alpha course he said uh, i expect you to be warrior diplomats but lethal warrior diplomats <laughs> i never forgot that <laughs> well i love that mantra you know walk softly but carry a big stick and some people misunderstand that like you're just going around smacking people in the face with it but you know, you, you, you need to be a dangerous person. And I'm not a dangerous person, but ultimately, you need to be a dangerous person. And then with that strength, use it for kindness and compassion and less called upon. That's it. That's right, brother. So I also want to say thank you to Chris Lee, who's who connected us. So how do you know Chris? Well, Chris and I connected a while back when I was working at uh, Fieldcraft Survival uh, with Mike Glover and Kevin Owens out there in Heber City, Utah. And we connected just uh, via, I think it was Instagram, which I don't have anymore. I'm on the Telegram now. But uh, yeah, we connected there and we just lost contact. And then uh, he popped back up and got on Telegram and said, hey, what's up, brother? Found out he's in Texas as well. So it was good to connect. And we have some stuff we may be working together with in the future. Fantastic. All right. Well, then, speaking of Texas, I'd love to start at the very beginning. Um, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your parents, what they what they did, and then um, how many oh. siblings. Okay. So, I was born in a little town called Kirksville, Missouri, which I didn't spend much time in. Uh, that's where I was born. 
my dad was in medical school at the time and he was uh he was a uh, uh, studying to be a osteopathic physician, a DO. And, uh, you know, I left, we left there when I was little and I grew up, uh, uh on a horse farm out in the country, really on, on, uh, uh, about 3000 people in town, two stoplights, kind of flashing lights, you know, every once in a while. Now they got a Walmart, but that's been several years. Um, uh, and my dad was from Greece originally. So he was an immigrant, um, uh, Grew up as a teenager. World War II was going on in Greece. The Germans had uh, come in and occupied his father. My grandfather was fighting the Italians up on the Albanian front. My dad, as a teenager, Germans come into town. They're rolling in. Uh, they were pretty heavy-handed in the beginning as they were fighting a forward leading edge of battle kind of thing. But then the occupation started. And that's where, uh, you know, now you've got these local troops. And, the, and this is in the Peloponnese of Greece, the southern part of Greece. And these people haven't been conquered by anybody. The, the Persians didn't do it to them. It's the Spartans. Uh, these are Laconians. Um, the Ottoman Empire came in. They didn't, they didn't stop them. But, you know, so these guys are, uh, the, the town village is called Mani. You know, and Mani is short for ma- maniac. And, you know, these, fight, these guys fight like maniacs. That's what they do. They're Cretans, uh, descent. But uh, anyway, they're rough. Grew up with that as a dad. You know, he came to America uh, on a Marshall plan. He had helped some... Uh, partisans he was a partisan uh and he helped the uh the british and the u.s guys that jumped in kind of the jedberg type of teams that you know about in in europe in this in the in the france uh, area but the oss guys also went into the balkan states up into yugoslavia further uh i believe some some operations in uh in the north country in the baltics as well but uh, so this is a predecessor to the Green Berets. It's kind of kind of interesting that he worked as a partisan, and here's I was a guy that learned how to to uh, operate with partisans. So kind of a, a long drawn out uh, legacy history. My mom's American, uh, you know, small town girl, but uh, family in Florida, family in Chicago. Uh, but you know, she was just a you know just a stay at home mom. Took care of us. My dad somewhere along the way was working as an orderly in a hospital and he came to America, met her, got married. He's working as an orderly and somebody identifies said, you're really good with people. Have you, you know, in the emergency room, he was a tech. And, uh, back then they called it orderly. You're really good with people. You're good with your hands. Can you, uh, you know, can you help us out in here? And we're going to go do surgery. You're going to be a surgery tech. So the next, you know, he's got hands, you know, being a surgery tech working uh, back in the sixties. This is on the job training or actually this is the fifties. Uh, OJT. And next thing you know, somebody sponsors him. He goes to med school. And that's how he ends up going to the osteopathic school, comes back, small town doc. So that's what I grew up around, going out with the little black bag, following him around the countryside, doing house calls, trading uh, medicines and treatments for uh, preserves and hogs. And it's just what people do in the country. It's what we may be doing in the future if we, uh, you know, if this thing gets crazy out here in the, uh, on the world stage. But uh, that's what I grew up with, but I always grew up with this. You're going to give back to this country what we got. That was the, that was the MO. I got, uh, two other siblings younger than me by, uh, three years, my younger brother, and then six years, my sister. And I was always the oldest son. And then in the, in the Greek, even though I didn't grow up Greek, I, I, I understand the culture and I, my grandparents would come with us and I learned how to speak it at a young age, but I was, I was just a typical American kid growing up in the country. But I always grew up knowing that I was going to serve because uncles that served in Vietnam, my mom's brother in Korea, uh, grandparents that served in World War II, it was just a known fact. 
And uh, dad said, all right, you're 17. You just finished high school. I finished a year early. Um, and uh, so you're going down to the recruiter. Roger that, sir. You know, I mean, my dad was rough. Uh, not physically rough on us, but just, you know, wake up every morning, look for work. That was the motto. Look for work. Get up. Roger, you know, five o'clock, got to take care of sheep, got goats, got some horses. We didn't have a lot of cattle on our thing. Every once in a while, we'd get a few, but sheep, horses, goats. All right, take care of the animals. Go to, you know, go to school. I walked five miles both ways. There was no snow. It was warm, but, uh, you know, uh, or ride a bike, catch a bus if I could, if I could make it. Anyway, so that was the, that was the patriotic dad that I had that said, you're going to give to this country what it did for us. Because he came from a war-torn, destroyed, you know, Mediterranean post-World War II. Uh, he was, he and his brothers were uh, ca- captured one time uh, with a group of kids. They had just, uh, and nobody ever has fessed up on who did it, but uh, they killed a, a NCO, a German NCO that was in the village. Rumor had it he had been going through raping somebody's sister or something in that village. And so uh, the boys got together and, and captured him and uh, threw him down a well. And, uh, of course, it's not really sanitary nowadays, you know, if you think about <laughs> You don't really want to taint your own water system, but these are kids that are passionate. They had a, they're in a fight. Well, they lined up all the fighting-age boys in a room, and they shot them all. And uh, he lost his ear, and I never really knew why until after he passed. Then I went to Greece and asked some great uncle or, or an uncle, and he said, well, your dad was in that room. They put the boys in. He just laid on the ground pretend like he was dead. So when you grow up with that... <laughs> And you come to America, everything's milk and honey. Uh, you you feel the need, or he did, that we would give back. And that's where my military career kicked off, showing up at a bus station on the way to Fort Benning, Georgia. Well, firstly, thank you for telling that story, because I think, you know, a couple of reasons. Firstly, there's a, there's a, a group of people that have a kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric and I know we're going to talk about the border a little bit later too but so many people have been on the show either like myself you know first generation immigrants or at least second generation and you hear these incredible stories of all these men and women that serve whether they were fighting different conflicts in their home you know at that moment or whether it's World War II Um, but then you know that multi-generational element of the trauma Um, you know I mean when you go through that I've had guests that were in Auschwitz I mean all kinds of different people one that was wounded mm-hmm. on Iwo Jima, and then you take that home, you know, and, and and there's that kind of all right, you're back now, let's go to work, and we kind of romanticized these World War II generation coming back, and the more I learned, the more my eyes were opened that no, it really wasn't ticker tapes and you know open arms. There are a lot of them that came, and that was it. So, with the lens that you have now, if not only in medicine but as a as a veteran with decades, you know, under your belt. When you look back at your dad, did you ever see any any kind of elements of, of mental health challenges from what he endured in Greece? Knowing what I know now, yes. And But he was really uh, very functional. He wasn't an alcoholic. He wasn't a wife beater or a kid beater. His his uh, came in the, the, the hair trigger uh, light switch. You know, he caught some kid sneaking around our house wanting to meet my sister in the middle of the night one time, big football kid. And. And literally, you know, my dad was a short, stocky little Greek guy. And this kid was a, you know, a lineman on the football team. And he, and he kind of sassed my dad a little bit. And that was the wrong answer. But I saw him go into like fight mode real quick. So he had that short temper and, uh, and it was over quick too. So I, I just, I, I learned to have that as well. You can ask my family. 
uh, and I think you get it honed a little bit in combat, but I've learned how to back off of it a lot sooner now. You know, it's just, I don't have to stay in the fight for as long. So, uh, and, I, and the fight is not as physically dangerous, but maybe morally is, is now the fight. Morally courage, moral courage is harder than physical courage any day. I, I've learned that as well. Which goes back yeah. to walk softly, but carry a big stick. Sometimes you need, you know, to have that fortitude to do the right thing. And that may not involve violence. Absolutely. You know, it, it took me 39 years and I, I wasn't in straight 39 years. I did my 10 years, got out, had an honorable discharge. I was an infantry kid, you know, jumped out of planes. I, I didn't really know much. Uh, I didn't learn much except for how to dig holes and carry heavy stuff long distances. And I could shoot a rifle pretty well, but I was just, just a grunt. And uh, I got out, went to college. Uh, I was going to be a criminal justice guy. That's what my major was. I was going to be a cop. And, uh, and then little, you know, did I know that uh, I was, I was always interested in medicine, but I thought, well, I'll take biology. I'll do this. I'll do that. Uh, I got to take a few prereqs or not prereqs, so basic, basic sciences. And I did, and I really just kind of keyed in on them. And I was like, I like this. So, uh, you know, uh, how, how exactly to happen? So I'm a criminal justice major. Yeah. And then I find out, and I'm taking summer, summer classes. I'm not your average college student, right? I'm older. I'm not here to party. I got the VEEP at that time, pre-GI Bill, the Veterans Education Assistance Plan. That's paying my college. I earned this. I'm getting A's. And that's what I did. And uh, and then, uh, so then I take the prereqs because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and try this MCAT thing, this medical college, you know, entrance test, the MCATs. I'm just going to try this. But I'm going to take the prereqs. So I did. I took them over the summer, which, you know, trying to take organic chemistry, calculus-based physics, whatever, all this crazy stuff that you had as prereqs, I just did it. You know, I sat down for hours. I'm not a really super smart guy, but I could sit for a long period of time and, and focus. So that's what I did. And uh, the next thing you know, I go up there, I apply to med school, and it's University of New England. I'm sitting there in a room with a bunch of other cats, and there's two, three seats left for 30 applicants that are trying out. And I'm standing in front of all these white coats up there, and they're just the smartest guys in the world. This is Ivy League stuff, and their ties and all this. I'm sitting out there in the hallway. Call me in and what, why should we let you come to our med school? You're a criminal justice major. You got, you know, you were a reserve cop. Okay, got it. Um, what, what, you haven't done any, any volunteer work. You haven't done any papers. You've been, you know, not cited anywhere. Uh, most of our people come here from, you know, Harvard and from Yale undergrads and this and that. Well, my dad was a country doctor. Uh huh. Okay. Well, I learned how to put a tourniquet on in the army. Uh, okay. So these are the things that, you know, I, I was literally like, I'll be honest, uh, this is my experience with medicine. I walked around and helped him set legs and I, you know, held stuff and did things for him while he was working on people. Okay. But I just, on the job training, really. But I had an interest in it. Anyway, this old guy walks out afterwards. I'm out in the hallway, you know, sitting there like, this is a waste of time. And this old doctor, Hadley Hoyt, I'll give him credit, uh, Looks like a little uh, Yoda guy, bald head, ears sticking out, old, old guy. He's chief of staff of this admissions board. He walks, I goes, where's Chambers? I said, right here. He goes, those mother flippers in there, they gave you crap about being an infantry grunt. Now listen, and he's looking up at me because he's five foot four or five, and he's yelling, he's pointing my face. He's like, I'm a, and now he's an expedite of every other word. So I'm like, this guy had to have been a Marine or something. He goes, I'm a freaking chosen reservoir veteran with the jarheads. The army came and rescued us. And I, I, 
I love you, brother, but you better not F up. I'm giving you a chance. I'm putting you in because I went to bat with those guys in there, those softies in there. So <laughs> so I had Hadley Hoyt. And my grades were pretty good, but my MCAT was acceptable. But I really had no as, – as far as the standard is, the standard which you would imagine a medical student coming in as, I really wasn't fitting that mold. And uh, Hadley Hoyt had me there. So do that. 9-11 happened. Okay, go to residency, uh, primary care, ER, family practice. Uh, 9-11 happens, and I join back up, right? I mean, I, I, had, I could not go. I mean, in the 80s and 90s in peacetime. And uh, never really got to serve in in, a, in the capacity that we have over the last twenty years. That kind of brings me brings you up to getting in the army and becoming a doc. Beautiful. Well, I want to go back to your dad becoming a doc first because it's funny oh, your yeah. your your childhood and mine are very paralleled. In fact, my dad was a veterinary surgeon, so I grew up on a farm oh. with horses and chickens and goats and sheep. And uh, rather than working on humans, I would go and, you know, we'd work on animals. And, I, you know, I, I tell this sometimes on, on here. I got to get to school the next morning all disheveled and tired. And, you know, I'd get chastised by teachers. Oh, you're probably up, you know, watching TV. It's like, no, I was up <laughs> lambing till three in the morning. So oh, there you go. But when you hear of uh, a country doctor, osteopath isn't, you know, what normally you're going to um, pops in your head straight away. So what took him to that particular discipline of medicine, which I I think now is so much more progressive than some of the other, you know, um, medical channels that a lot of our men and women are sent through. Yeah, let me let me tell you a little bit about the osteopaths. So they started with a guy named A.T. Still. His first medical school was in Kirksville, Missouri, where my dad went to medical school. Their philosophy was more uh, align the body, align the spine, align things. They were more hands-on at the time, and uh, it allowed the body to heal itself. A little bit of the naturopathic side as well. But uh, when the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers took over allopathic medicine back in that era, uh, they pushed everything towards pharma. And this is some of the problems we're seeing today uh, because they were oil guys. They, they made their money in the oil field where there was byproducts of, of uh, oil products uh, that are used in pharma. And so that, that allopathic line and the osteopathic line kind of became a, uh, separated by by a lot more distance because they were they were small town docs in, in many ways, but they didn't do a lot of the same surgical procedures, et cetera. Uh, they didn't have the surgical suites and things that, that the bigger hospitals had. And you saw a big division. There's somewhere in the 60s and 70s, uh, they, they, they kind of came together a little bit on, on uh, licensure. And then, uh, so then my dad, at, during that time, he graduated, I believe it was 65 from med school. I, I was born 64. And uh, so I was one. We went back to our, our town. And uh, these guys had some cojones. Let me tell you, one year internship, one year, and they're taking out gallbladders. They're taking out appendix. They're doing uh, tonsillectomies. They're doing uh, delivering babies, C-sections. Out in the country, you're it, right? The next hospital is Atlanta or the next hospital is whatever. I mean, you got hours to get there. Or you go to this guy that's just got some serious cojones and has done it once or twice, seen it, done one, teach one. I mean, that's what those guys were like the real deal. So that's so he had some serious cojones. And, and I think in my medical walk, I, I ended up inheriting some of that because I've been downrange in Nepal and I've been in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And I've been in places where we had to do procedures, uh, cracking chest, uh, appendectomies, uh, burr holes. 
that you don't typically do as a primary care doc in the States. But when you're out there and you got, you know, evac time is, uh, let's say, 72 hours minimum, and I got a subdural hematoma, somebody's bleeding in their skull, and you got to get it out. And the only thing you've got, you don't have a CT scan, is your hands and your your knowledge of what the uh, facial structures or what kind of cranial nerve deficits you're going to see. You're drilling a hole. Well, this guy's going to have an uncle herniation and die. And then we've had to do that. Uh, so these are, these are, it was a perfect setup for me to understand. I guess that was God's way of saying, all right, here you're going to see real medicine in its finest, in its purest, where you really do it be things out of love because you love these neighbors and you, and you take care of them and you do stuff uh, for them that you would, you know, you do anything for them. Uh, and someday it's going to, it's going to be in your hands to do this stuff. But it was just, I was wearing a uniform doing it. Uh, yeah. So the seeing my dad do that and, and what brought him to that, I, I don't, I don't know what, you know, I, I never really asked him what brought him to do that, but he was just a, uh, a rural kid in Greece and he became a rural kid in America. <laughs> Well, it's amazing because when we look at a lot of medicine now, and obviously I get a different lens being a firefighter paramedic, you know, you get to see some pharmaceuticals that worked incredibly well in the emergency setting, you know, that will bring someone back from a cardiac arrhythmia or, you know, um, Narcan, oh, yeah. for example. But, um, you know, you also see all these false promises that are given to these very, very sick Americans that die you know, looking at your ugly mug, you know, over and over and over again. So you get to see behind the curtain, you get to see what works and what doesn't. And so when I look at chiropractic, osteopath, you know, a lot of these other um, more holistic medical roots that more often than not were demonized for a long time and kind of, you know, hailed as heretics, they seem to have a lot of the very things that we need. And that, that proactive preventative element, I think people are starting to finally get their eyes open now and go, all right, the same as and we'll get into it, but you know the, the the prohibition of drugs and what a fucking absolute shit show that's been. It's the same with right. you know this disease symptomatic management that we have at the moment, where we've created legalized and you know addicts, but they don't realize they're addicts. You know hypertension meds and and diabetes meds and all these things that people are, are told you're going to be on this forever. I mean, what an amazing mm -hmm. you know um, structure for for an addiction model that we have in our chronically ill people. So when you look back um, at the osteopathic kind of philosophy, how does it different to difference or you know what are the differences? Excuse me, between that and some of the kind of modern medicine that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, you know, that's a great question to follow with the last little part. Um, I would say because the two have aligned again, the, the DOs and the MDs in residency programs now, even though there are some strictly osteopathic, um, but they're now pretty much aligned. You'll see, uh, I think, I believe it's uh, the primary care docs in the country, 10% are DOs. So it's a small percent compared to, to the 90%. Uh, allopathic but they're going through the same program so when you see that um some of the guys have been guys gals uh, have been hijacked to that mentality you know where it's just like hey got to push drugs got to see a patient got to get them out right and and i look i fell into that too not so much in the uh, emergency room uh but i did work urgent care it's emergency room you know you, you're going to do one of three things you're going to either admit them you're going to send them home or you're going to put a you know a bag over them I mean, those are your choices, really. That's all you got. So it's pretty, ER medicine is the easiest medicine there is. Because usually when they come to me, they're somewhat packaged. I finish it up. I call somebody and say, hey, I'm going to send it to you. 
But in the primary care world, in the urgent care, which is almost like a family practice, it's it it takes a little extra time, right? Because you know, urgent cares are run by some dude who's got some money. He wants to push enough people through. So you got this, you know, there's going to be somebody talking to you about it. you're not seeing enough patients, but it's going to take some time when somebody comes in and says, hey, I need uh, 100 oxycodone refilled. My doctor gave it to me, but they fell down the sink. Okay, well, I tell you what, I'll be right back. And then I go in there and I pull up the database and I see that they just got 100 of them yesterday in some pharmacy, you know, 20 miles from here. All right, now I got to walk out and sit down again, and I got to explain to them why this isn't good for them. All right, now I get cursed and all that, and I get a bad Prescini report, which is like a you know their report on me. You know, ah, it's terrible doctor; he wouldn't give me my narks. But until you start educating people and start, you know, I had a guy in residence. This is a sad story. This is sad, and he was a DO, uh, and this tells you kind of what where where they got hijacked a little bit. When I was going through clinical rotations uh, as a resident, and I was a chief resident at the time, um, I had to do this rural medicine rotation in, out in Oklahoma. And uh, he said, you can put your kids through college on people like this, the, the drug seekers. You can put your kids through college. And I just thought back to my dad, and I thought, what a difference that the DO profession has come to. Now, there are still those of us that still hold those those original uh, ethos of osteopathic medicine and and allopathic for that matter first of all do no harm i mean that's that's an easy one right it doesn't matter if you know do no harm what does that mean well give them their meds so they can leave and then you won't be harmed no no that's not what that means (laughs) what it means is care about the person that's in front of you you know that if you give them this medication because they're going to be hooked you're going to be part of the problem and this is part of the problem and then, you know, then they don't get their medicine, let's say, and they find something out on the market and they go buy some, some uh, I've seen it on the border, some uh, oxycodone that comes across from Mexico, except it's laced with, laced with fentanyl. All right, great. That's a, that's a nice one. So we're, we're going to put you to sleep permanently. Uh, so, so you see, the first of all, do no harm thing, both sides of the aisle, the DOs and the MDs, uh, it, it's, uh, it's kind of, it had fallen by the wayside. But now this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing an awakening, and you know, I'm not using the word woke, right? This is, this is not woke that I'm talking about. I'm talking about an enlightening and awakening in a lot of things in this country, but definitely in medicine. In medicine, we're, we're seeing, uh, or for me in medicine, we're seeing that people are questioning. They come in, they question, they say, why is my doctor like sending me to this specialist to have this procedure done? Uh, here's, a, here's a prime example. I like to use real examples. Uh, Guy with prostate cancer, a friend of mine, uh, said he was he had mets to the metastasis to the lumbar spine, typical location, and he's uh, stage four. And he says they told me I got to go in and do a transurethral resection of my prostate. What should I do? I was like, well, I mean, I'm not your oncologist and I'm not your your primary care, but but uh, what are they what are they saying? You know, do you need to get on some Lupron or something like that chemically to uh, control your your hormones? Yeah, yeah, so this and this. All right, well, when when they came back, when he came back, they said, well, now they've done that. They want to do radiation. I'm like, wait a minute. You just had a resection. All right, they didn't tell you about the radiation? No, they didn't say that. I absolutely have to have it. And I'm like, okay, well, have you considered some other things? Because there's other things out there, right? There's some naturopathic things that, that will work for early earlier onset. Uh, you know, we're seeing some really good stuff, actually, with your, your dad's fa- history with uh, veterinary medicine with fenbendazole, which is a, you know, 
veterinary drug. Uh, you know, ivermectin is along the same lines. And, uh, you know, that's that's not just horse paste, okay? <laughs> it was great, created originally for humans. But uh, so we're seeing other options. So I, I just gave them those options. I said, look, I'm not telling you to do this. What I'm saying is look at these studies and talk to these people that I've talked to who said that, hey, I did fenbendazole and, you know, I was, I was uh, eradicated my cancer with this. Okay, hey, let's look at it. You know, got to be willing to look at things. Um, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, you run off and, and just go start buying fenbendazole and taking it. Talk to a naturopath or an osteopath or even some of the alpaths are now looking at this. And that's what I'm saying. There's, there's an awakening. And uh, it's, it, it's kind of nice to see because it, it got pretty dark there for a while. Well, and that's the thing, not to, not to kind of laud the entire um, allopathic medicine community as, as you know, demons, no, but if you look no. at the way that they're educated, you know, and I've had so many on here, you know, the, the amount of time they get on, on sleep, on nutrition, on exercise, and all these elements that are preventative is, I mean, it's a, a sliver of the pie, and there's so much pharmacology in there. And then you look at the way, as you, as you touched on, the short amount of time that our physicians get with these patients because they have to fill it up, especially if it's a kind of Medicare, Medicaid kind of uh, yeah, practice yeah. as well. I mean, it's it's all set up to fail. So we do have to kind of control or delete this entire system and look at, you know, I've just changed doctors and it's um, uh, what they call it, concierge care. So we actually get like an hour and I don't even need a doctor. I just, it was time for a, for a physical but it was a full hour, you know, and it was it was a discussion. It was a conversation. And that's what we need. We need to get back to that where our providers are educated on the preventative side as well. And as you mentioned, they get to to really try and get to the root of the problem. You know, you have an addict. So why are you an addict? Let's get you to the kind of people that you can start addressing the mental health that's underlying your addiction and get you off these damn pills. That's right. It, it, and it's un, the underlying issue is where we need to go. And it takes more time to do that. And this is a problem I've seen on both sides, DOs and MDs. They're, nobody's immune to it. It's just the system has pulled us in. And we've got to get away from the system, you know, away from pharma being the center of everything, because that's where it was. I mean, when I was in residency, it was, you know, all the big companies, Merck and Pfizer and all those taking you out to dinner and, and you know, sending you on vacations with, uh, because there's a conference there and they couldn't really send you on vacation, but they could, they could hook it to a conference and it made it legal. Uh, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to write the thing that just, you just came through the door, you know, whatever pharmacist, uh, not pharmacist, whatever pharmaceutical just, uh, just pitched you. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that, and that, that gets to another thing, which is about military medicine. I want to kind of jump into that if we can, please. Um, yeah. Military medicine, is uh, I always had this image in my mind. Of course, you know, we all, I don't know, I'm a little older. I watch MASH, which is a TV series about the Korean War docs. And I always identify with Hawkeye Pierce, right? Because I'm a little bit, yeah, I'm not going to follow the rules 100%. I always wore my cowboy hat in combat. Not in combat, but base camp. Uh, you know, but I, I related to that. And it was kind of comedy. And there was some some slapstick in there. But there was some reality to it. And, and. So just so people understand, you know, I, I get a lot of conversation. Well, at least you're a doctor in the military. You weren't in combat. I'm like, let me explain something to you. There's two kinds of doctors in the military. There's, there's regular hospital doctors that work in clinics, hospitals, MASHs, or that now they call them combat surgical hospitals, CASH. Um, and then there's operational docs. Now, an operational doc could be in the aviation on the, on the Air Force or Navy. They might be a flight surgeon flying a Mach 2 in some kind of, you know, fast mover. Right. For a guy like me, 
well, I'm an operational doc and that I'm assigned to special forces or I was, and, uh, I get to hook up and jump out of the plane with them and go do whatever it is we got to do. Now I'm not the guy kicking the door. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'm the guy that's offset a little bit where I'm nearby to offer as, uh, resuscitative care as soon as possible uh and it does give them a little bit of, I, i've had my guys tell me it gives them a little bit of warm fuzzy to know that doc is out here right and i would feel the same way uh you are 18 deltas are the best trauma medics in the world uh I'll, I'll put them up against anybody i'll put them up against 90 percent of the er doctors i work with uh because they can't do it out of a bag on their back uh, but when when I went to combat the first time, and, and in military medicine, this is going to be a get to the point here, but um, okay, so I learned how to work out of uh, an M9 bag, so to speak, or a stomp bag, or whatever bag they gave me, a London Bridge from 18 Deltas. And I learned from 68 whiskeys, basic medics on the battlefield. Hey, sir, check this out. I used this rock to put in this guy's iliac crest here, or il- iliac uh, bowl to stop this femoral bleed what do you think i'm like well is he still alive yeah well then you did good <laughs> okay you know like we just you know we just we use uh duct tape and uh and rocks sometimes it's just the way it is uh, i ran out of stuff numerous times in triage or in in mass cows and you just you make do so military medicine and this is this is now going to get to the point now you understand the two different kinds that are out there is military medicine in the rear is a, just like a hospital that's just there, right? Just like any other hospital in the neighborhood. They may not be the trauma center, but they, they can do basic stuff. But military medicine in the military has been hijacked, okay? And, it, and we'll get to this if we do talk about this, the mandate stuff. And it's been hijacked by this hierarchy of, uh, you know, I'm just going to say, I'll be straight up lunatics, right? Because think about this. You take a doc who has rank now. Now, this is different than a doc in the real world who's making a living, you know, seeing patients in action. Now you give somebody rank. All right, so you come in as a captain. That's how they come in. And they go in and become a major. At this point, they're now a staff officer. They're still seeing patients. Now they become the glorious lieutenant colonel. And then from there, bird colonel, and a few of them become stars, you know, brigadier generals. When they do that, they, they, they retreat to their offices, and then they, they become administrators. All right, that's what they do. They, they don't see that many patients. There are, there are some out there that do, and God love you. I, I know like two of you at Fort Bragg that are still doing it. And thank you. But, uh, but the rest of them out there, I'm sorry. That, that system is, is flawed. And I, I have testified in Congress or two congressmen about that system and said, you need to get rid of the Army Medical Corps and keep the operational docs because that's where the rubber meets the road. Let, let service members have Blue Cross, Blue Shield, whatever. Cut the money that's been wasted. You're paying for a lot of people just sitting at desks doing administrative stuff, sending each other emails, right? Because that's what they're doing. All right. And going to a lot of meetings and fix that system. We fix that system. We'll take care of our soldiers better. That's just the way it is. Now, the surgeons and all those that are operational forward, got to keep those guys and gals. Uh, but you can do that in the reserve system. But Army medicine, is, is, it, needs a, it, needs a, it needs to be revamped. And we will talk about mandates as it comes up. 
Well, let's go to that now because I wanted to obviously get to your 9-11 story and, and we'll get to that as well. But while we're oh, yeah. on the medical yeah. side, let's stay on that. So let's talk about the, the mandates first. And I'd love to also get to the, the kind of prohibition, the drug prohibition element too, before we progress back onto your military career. Okay, track it. Yeah, so uh, we, we, uh, we're looking at the mandates. Let me go back just to 2020, 2020, January. Uh, I had come back from a trip to Africa. We actually, our unit, our Texas Special Operations Detachment, we had done a trip. It was a training mission downrange, nothing nothing big, about 45 days. Came back and literally uh, passing through the, this coronavirus. What is that? Well, I knew what coronavirus was as a doc. It's the common cold. That's what coronavirus is. It's just a, this is a variant. And uh, didn't know anything about it. Well, we'll show up back to the unit. Uh, commander comes in and says, hey, doc, uh, you want to do some extra work? I said, Abbott's task force on COVID in the state of Texas. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll go do that. So basically, I'm, I'm the guy going between the Texas military department, however many, what, 20,000-something uh, service members uh, run by a two-star at the uh, state headquarters in Austin and uh, the staff that works for Governor Abbott. And the, and the task force. Now they're responding to what we know as some kind of virus that's potentially going to, if you went by the original models, kill everybody in the state of Texas in 10 years. I mean, the really, the scare, the, the fear factor that came out. But these were all medical models. You know, there was a London model. There was a Texas A&M model. There was the uh, Stanford model. There was uh, oh, a couple others that we would look at. And it, and it literally, I, I believe it was... You know, within a year, there were going to be a million deaths in Texas alone is what it projected there, the A&M model. And we're talking, I'm just looking at, uh, at the heat maps around the world because I'm just a simple country doctor, of course. And I'm, I'm looking at Africa and I'm looking at India. And I'm like, why is that heat map in the central part of Africa where I just came from, where I was taking hydroxychloroquine to avoid malaria? Why is there no COVID at this time? Why is India, these certain provinces where they're using ivermectin, why is that not? So I, I literally, by March, this is January, February, March, by March, I had typed my first PowerPoint uh, review to the Texas military department and said, we need to consider getting all our troops on ivermectin prophylactically and using uh, hydroxychloroquine if they do get it. This is what we need to start doing. And this was me just doing cause and effect, just looking, just looking at, at literature that was early and listening to people like Dr. Lee Merritt uh, not really so much Malone at the time, a little bit of Peter McCullough. He was talking about a little bit, but I'm just listening to smart people and trying to figure out what's the best way to keep my troops safe. But at this point, I know it's not, it's not going to kill 1 million people in the next year in Texas. I know that, but we still spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the state of Texas alone on personal protective equipment, ventilators, all this stuff, building bed space. We'd go in and take a hotel and put 50 beds in it and be ready for the onslaught of patients that we were going to have. And uh, then we went down and started doing PCR testing. Well, if you know anything about PCR testing, even the guy that created PCR testing, it's not supposed to be used on asymptomatic people in, the, in, the, in mass to use as a screening tool. And then if you cycle it up enough times, you can, you can make, you know, this iced tea I'm drinking right here, you can make it positive for COVID. So you, you, you can't, you, you have to use good, science here. This is the difference between uh, Darwinian science and Newtonian science. I, I have facts over here. Darwin, I have theory, right? 
So that's the way I look at things. It's Pluto, Aristotle. I mean, we can go all the way back. So I'm, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. This, this is some fact-based stuff. I'm looking at real numbers out of India and this and that. So I'm, I'm trying to interpose and say, and then finally, and the, and the reason I'm being so, so uh, repeating myself on this is because this is what I did every day at that, at that operation center in Austin. And the state, uh, it's called Department of State Health Services, which would be their version of HHS, came to me finally and said, would you quit saying the words ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? We're not going to do it. I said, why? Well, because Trump said that. I go, I don't, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Trump's not a doctor. I don't take my advice from him, and I don't get shunned away from things that he says just because he says it. Well, if you keep saying it, we're going to kick you out of here or whatever. And they ended up you know, sending me out down the road, which was fine. I'd been there three months, and I was done with being in an in a, uh, operation center. But the point is, is that there were some fears that came out early that made me a little bit uh, suspect as to why we couldn't practice good medicine more before anymore. Why is it that hydroxychloroquine, which I've used for years with guys, not one guy had a QT interval problem, a, a, a heart wave, you know, uh, electro electrophysiologic problem. It didn't happen. Didn't happen downrange. And so, these studies that they use, you know, they, they, you can take any study and sway it any way you want. And this is, this is where I got in that fight. Now, the, they'd send me to the border because a year after that started, uh, the border kind of kicked up. You know, we, uh, we started seeing about twelve to 15,000 um, immigrants coming across a week, a week, 1,248 miles of Texas border. And this year, it's uh, about three times as many. And uh, I, I was proud that they sent me down there with a particular unit. Even though I'm in a Green Beret unit, I was I was proud to be sent to this unit on the border. The three of the 141, a great unit. Um, they're, they're, they're located right there in McAllen, Texas. And their lineage goes back to the Alamo. When I looked at their battle streamers on there, I was like, this is cool. The very last unit that I'm going to be in in Texas was, was at the Alamo. This is a pretty cool thing. Or their battle streamers from the outbreak. Anyway, we get to the border. I'm taking care of oh, two, three thousand uh, troops down there, and uh, the mandates come along. This would be uh, Lloyd Austin did this in, let's say, August uh, time frame. If I'm not wrong, I think it's around the 24th. There's a lot of numbers floating around up here, but uh, mandates come along, and now we have to do them. Now at that point, nobody was taken. We were, you know, we were keeping people safe by just doing nasal swabs. You know, when troops are standing on the border and there's that many people walking past them and like nobody being tested, nobody's, uh, you know, we, there are sick people walking past you at night. I just kept them safe by doing what I would normally do in a third third world country, which is good good hygiene. You know, uh, wear your gloves if you, if you have to go hands-on and then uh, use a nasal swab with some betadine and some, and some saline and let's just do that every night when you've been around a bunch of people and there was nobody getting sick. Nobody. Until the mandates came. When the mandates came, no kidding, and, and I've testified this in court in, uh, in uh, Liberty Council's case in Tampa, Seals versus Lloyd Austin. The numbers that I got, and these are my numbers, and, and, and this is what I saw, 78% of the people that came in positive, tested positive, were double vaxxed. 78%. And that's number one. Uh, of, the, of the 28% vax that we did have on the border, I think out of 3,000 informed consents that I did, that I personally did, only about six people took shots. 
I mean, I was doing them when they were coming on the border and thousands at a time. Well, they already had plenty of opportunity to take them. They just didn't. And then when they became mandated, that's where uh, the problems came in. Because now I've got to do informed consents, which I had been doing, but now I'm being told not to do informed consents. That gets to the shadow regulation system, which was a problem. Well, I think this is such an important conversation now because the same as you know the Afghan withdrawal and so many other things in this kind of clickbait you know uh, media system that we have at the moment and I, and I always you know I'm, I'm pointing at Fox and CNN you put those two agencies side by side they're the exact same fucking blueprint just different color ties but the moment the next shiny object is you know comes around then whatever happened prior is forgotten and one thing that i did through the whole of covid i stood you know both feet firmly in the middle and saying look what i'm seeing is a horrendous mental and physical health crisis in this country and this particular virus is absolutely snatching bodies because of of this you know and and there are some anomalies where perfectly healthy people seem to have succumbed and obviously there was some sort of you know uh, vulnerability in those individuals but overall 90 plus percent of people that we were losing it was the final nail in the coffin of, of an ill health that was already there but now you know well, as we're at the other end of this this conversation as well I'm looking back and as you said, all these people that are vaccinated and I questioned this at the beginning, like to me, a vaccine is something stops you getting something anymore, tetanus, you know, MMR and all these things that we get that we're required to get that none of us question really in the fire service because we have to get those, but they Mm -hmm. appear to do exactly what we were told they do. Conversely, it didn't seem to be the case with that. And and I had an issue with that initially. I got vaccinated. I, I think I told you I went to the UK. It was the only way I was going to really be able to travel. My grandmother's about to turn 105. So for me, I was like, okay, I'm doing this for her. I'm taking one for the team because I want to make sure I minimize the risk of getting my grandmother ill. So even though I felt absolutely comfortable just getting it and, you know, letting natural immunity kick in, I wanted just to be to be extra safe and be able to visit her. And she's still, <laughs> you know, like a year later, she's still going strong. So uh, I think I think uh, I'm probably more vulnerable than she is. Um, but when we look back now, every man and his dog is getting COVID people that were vaccinated. So that has to be in the discussion as well when you bring in mandates. I have got, you know, friends that I brought on the show as well that was subject to that mandate. One who one who's a battalion chief lost his job because of that. And now we look back and these vaccines weren't doing what we were initially told. And you took away veteran first responder and military jobs because they didn't take this shot, that is what I have an issue with, the mandate element. If, if you know a vaccine is someone's choice and if they choose to go one or the other, more power to them. I want to make sure they're having the conversation of making sure they're the healthiest version of themselves as well. But to take away jobs from something that wasn't doing what we, to- we were told, that ethically I think is so wrong and it's why we need to continue this conversation. Oh, <laughs> You touched on so many things that uh, that have really been the the, the center of this fight. Um, and, and when you know, go back to the border now. And, and when I did a bunch of informed consents in groups of five hundred at a time, and and just told them, I said, "Look, you're you're healthy, you're young, you don't need it. You're going to get you know natural immunity. Uh, do these things to be safe." I gave informed consent, and then when they when they the state sent down their first. Uh, injection team that was mandatory at this time, I picked up the bio, I looked at it, and it said BioNTech on it. 
And I said, no, this is not the approved one. It's Comernity. Take it back. Well, there's another five-hour drive back to them, back up to uh, Austin. And then uh, a couple weeks later, they sent down another team. Okay, we got the right one, Doc. We'll, we'll give it the right one. Just just so you know that when Lloyd Austin wrote the frag order number five, fragmentary order number five, in that fragmentary order, in the fine print, it says, commanders will only give the authorized vaccine that has been approved. Not a BLA, not an EUA, not emergency use authorization, approved. And therefore, when they saw Comernity, they said, well, we'll get Comernity. And, and, and officers, officers above me, my command, uh yeah yeah we'll get it don't worry we'll get it we'll get it keep telling me we'll get it all right well then every time it show up i would send it back because the same thing happened the next time and this time it was moderna i'm like well what what about the word moderna we're a captain the young captain that's come in and trying to explain to me why she's this is this is authorized sir I'm like what about moderna and commodity don't match and she's like well they're two different right you don't have the commodity Take your little happy butt there, Captain. Get your vehicle. Take your shot, people, and move out. Get out of my AO. Roger that. So now the third time they show up, they show up with a two-star general. He outranks me a little bit. Right? I'm just a lieutenant colonel. And uh, this is Lieutenant uh, Major General Eris. He's retired now. He conveniently retired when all this went down. Uh, but anyway, he came in, and uh, I had the numbers on the board ready to go. I knew he was coming in to talk to me about all this. And, uh, you know, I've, I've briefed SOCOM commanders, congressmen, all this. I'm not afraid of somebody because of rank. I got 39 years in the military. Look, I've been chewed out before. We can handle it. So bring it in, sir. How you doing? And, of course, I got this totally out of regs mustache going at the time, you know, sideburns down to my, you know, cheeks. And he's like, all right, uh, I can see you're going to be a troublemaker. And I was like, no, sir. No, come on in. So he comes in, two, two star, one star behind him. And the entourage, you know, the light colonel, a couple of light colonels carrying his his briefcase and his uh, powder <laughs> makeup kit, and then uh, this this bird colonel who was on my side. Thank God, you know, Colonel. I won't say his name on here, but awesome dude. Um, anyway, I got the stuff on the board. I'm like, sir, 78 percent double vax, boom, 28 percent. These guys are not getting sick because we're keeping them uh, in the fight by doing uh, lesser intrusive means. Nasal swabs, blah, blah. I'm kind of proud of that. Nobody's been sick. We haven't had anybody on quarantine. And he looks at me and goes, now, Doc, I don't under know if you understand or not. This is about policy. This is not about science. Now, at that point, I did take a step back. And I was looking at him like, what the heck? I said, sir, it is policy. It's called the Army Regulation 40-562, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2 through 6. In there, you will note that there must be informed consent, number one. Number two, if it's an EUA, you, you can only use the approved one. Otherwise, they do not have to take it, period. I don't care if there's a mandate or not. Look at this. Look at the fine print in frag order number five that he wrote that said commanders will ensure. I said, if we don't do that, we'll be in violation of Article 92. I was ready for this stuff, right? <laughs> Sounds like it. Article, <laughs> Article 92, failure to follow a direct order. I said, sir. Then we will also fall in the category of crimes against humanity, which under the Nuremberg Code and the Helsinki Accord, and he's looking at me like, Doc, I don't give a damn. Don't you understand? It's policy. And he goes, and if you're all about the regs, what's up with that mustache? And I was like, okay, you got me there, sir. 
my stash out of regs. I'll shave it tomorrow. If this will mean we can do our, our informed consents. And then, and this is when the, the, the conversation changed because we were kind of tongue in cheek in it. He had been giving me the respect that, you know, somebody commensurate with whatever my job title was. Uh, and then he goes, well, you're going to quit doing informed consents because not enough people are taking it. I don't know what you're telling them. I said, I'm telling the truth, sir. And he said, well, quit doing them and uh, have a good day, doc. He turns around like I said, sir, that's an unlawful order. I won't do it. And he turned around. He's turned red. He got in my chili again. He got up to my nose. He's like, I'm telling you with the knife hand. And at that point, I'm like, if this guy touches me, I'm looking at this one star and I'm looking at this other guy. I'm fixing to throw him over my body. Now, he's a, a portly fella. I have no problem doing it. I just have to take a knee. But he's going over. And uh, I can see the bird colonel who I used to roll with on the mat. He's looking at me, shaking his head like, no, doc. No, don't do this. Don't do this. And so anyway, he didn't touch me. But uh, he walked out and basically uh, told the state surgeon to fire me. And the state surgeon tried to fire me, but I had warned him that there was, uh, it was I was a whistleblower at that point. Uh, I tried to do it through Senator or Congressman Crenshaw's office. I got no help from him. But I finally, through uh, Teresa Long, got to Senator Johnson, which is where we get to the defense medical epidemiology stuff. But uh, yeah, that's that's the climate on the border with that. And I just want people to know that because that's what, what we deal with. They don't see the behind the scenes, uh, I don't even know, absurdity. Be the best word. Well, yeah. I, mean, I know that you ended up, you know, transitioning out of the military because of this whole issue. As you said, forty nine, excuse me, thirty nine years. That's a hell of a, yeah. you know, hell of a service. So, talk to me about that. I mean, where did it go after this yeah. conversation? Yeah. So uh, after that, I went back to my office, did my, did my job. I kept doing informed consents. I'm like, you just, you, know, you can't stop me. It's I know by the regs, I'm right. And so I'm going to always do legal, moral, ethical, and then I always add, first of all, do no harm. So those are my, my how what got me through, at least as a doc in the military. Um, so I'm in my office about a couple weeks later, and there's a phone call. It's the state surgeon. He says, hey, you're going to have to pack up your bags or send somebody else down there to take over. Okay, sounds good to me. I'll pack my bags. But just so you know, I mean, and I like this guy. You know, and, and There's an interesting closure to this part of the story, but I'll tell you this part first and tell you what what tells you about the regulations, uh, the shadow regulation system. Colonel, Colonel Pete, same first name as me. He calls me and says, yeah, you got to pack up your bag. And I hate it, brother, but you know, they're, they're, they're pulling you out. They, you know, he won't take ownership. Uh, all right, sir. Uh, but just so you know, I got a whistleblower. There's a whistleblower act. If you do it, it'll seem as retribution. I'm trying to help you here. Just, just be careful. You're treading on thin water, a thin ice. <laughs> He says, well, I'll take that in consideration. And then he, then he stopped. He said, well, I'll call you back in an hour. He calls me back in an hour. He's like, uh, just stay down there. Uh, we're good. Uh, yeah, because nobody's got any, any balls anymore in the military. Like, if you're going to call it, call it what it is. Hey, I'm taking out the board. I don't care about the cars. I respect that more than, oh, yeah, I'm going to crumble now. and I'm going to go back to my desk. No, no, no. You, you stand by what you do, and you don't blame somebody else. But anyway, he did that. He crumbled. And yeah, uh, okay, stay on the border. When your orders run out, so I was basically supposed to be on the border for even this year right now. I would finish up in uh, 24. Uh, w w would have put me over 40 years in total time and service, not all active guard and reserves. But anyway, I said, uh, all right, I'll stay down here until my orders run out, which will be in December of this past year. And then uh, subsequently, that doc, doc, first name, same first name as me, Pete, he's actually a Brit as well. <laughs> Funny thing. Great guy. I mean, 
witty, witty guy, real dry humor, British, you know, love uh, joking with him and bantering with him. He was, he was, uh, oh, what a sticky wicket, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> anyway, he, uh, he calls me after he retires, which is in, uh, let's see, which would be January, February this year. He retired. He got out. Uh, and he calls me and he says, hey, Pete, look, I'm sorry about what happened on the border with you, losing your job and all that, and pulling you off orders. I know that you really owned that mission down there. I did because it's the first time I'm on a mission defending actual U.S. territory, right? That's the way I looked at it. We've been all over the world protecting everybody else. Now I'm back home and we're, you know, we're not in a shooting war down there, but it could turn into one any minute with cartels that get crazy. But we're in a, uh, we're in a whack-a-mole trying to find people coming across with, you know, terrorists come across bombs or bomb making materials, fentanyl, uh, you know, we kill as many people with fentanyl than you can with a bomb or maybe more, uh, all kinds of stuff. You know, the, the people coming across the family units, look, I feel for them. I had a sergeant in my unit down there in the Alamo battalion who literally came across that river when he was five years old as, as an illegal. And he served two tours in combat, not with me, but with that unit. So, and, and decorated veteran, bronze star, purple heart. So to me, you know, if you're if you came across to America, you, you deserve every every uh, you know everything that it that it do for you as, as long as you're willing to do for it. You know, that's the thing. I, my my dad always taught me is you got to give back. You got to give back to the community. You got to give back to people. But anyway, so this Pete Caldwell, he said <laughs> I said his name. That's okay. He's a good guy. Uh, he says to me, I agreed with what you were doing with standing up on the mandates. I just had the command on top of me and I, and I was so close to retirement. I just didn't want to get in that fight. Now the sign flashed through my head, cowardice, right? <laughs> but I liked the guy and I was like, all right, that's cool, sir. You know, I don't have to call him sir anymore, but it's just natural. Anyway. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, I appreciate the support. He said, oh, keep doing what you're doing. I'm listening to you. I'm following you now. And I, and I believe in what you're doing. I just couldn't get in there when all I had the command on top of me. Okay. So that's, that's kind of brings that, you know, full circle. Uh, even though I, I got pulled out early, uh, I enter, I interpose, you know, there's a doctrine, it's called the doctrine of lesser magistrates, which is kind of a biblical purpose principle, but it's also, uh, a Scotsman, uh, John Knox. He, he was, uh, he went to bat for the, to the lower people that were, you know, the, the nobles were in their castles and he was talking to him saying, Hey, you know, and he came and he interposed and what he did is he stood, stood in the gap interposed for the the lower common people john knox and he wrote this eloquent uh thing about the doctrine of lesser magistrates we as officers and as leaders community leaders and, and somebody that that has some sort of a responsibility for those under them can and must interpose if they truly take their job seriously for those that are less fortunate that are uh, oppressed that are uh that are being uh, tyrannically controlled, whatever it is, you, 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 if you think it's wrong, you, you are, you must interpose. You, you, you must go to back for these folks. Uh, and that's what, uh, what I learned. And so, you know, that's, that's where we're at now. We're in that, we're in that fight. I'm seeing more and more people step up. Thank God. So uh, one of your peers, uh, Dr. Chris Colvin, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's uh, uh, a veteran now as an ER physician just outside of Austin. But he came on and he oh. gave a, a great, great conversation on the pros and cons of vaccination. And it was interesting because in his through his lens, in his particular ER, he was getting a lot of people very, very sick from COVID. They were losing a lot of people. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, what I got from that conversation again, underlying health, extremely important. Um, but or, you know, there were elements of this vaccine that seemed to reduce symptoms a little bit. So people that were already chronically ill, it may have been a life saving intervention for them. But you talk mm-hmm. about, you know, what's best for the people. We had a captive audience for two years and coming through, you know, the, the, whether it's the coach, nutritionist, the osteopath lens, the, the proactive healthcare lens, we had an amazing opportunity to have multiple discussions and, you know, get people to get outside, to, to, to throw a lot of money at local farms, get rid of all the chemicals, get, you know, the organic farming going again. Look at the way that we're feeding our children, get all the fucking fast food and soda companies, you know, claws from out of our education system. But what happened? The polar fucking opposite. They shut down the gyms. They closed the parks and the beaches. You could get alcohol and food delivered to your house. Um, you know, fitness standards are being lowered. I just learned the London Transport Police are about to get rid of their only fitness standard. So we've done the polar opposite that is be concerned with our nation's health. And that's the issue that I have. If this was coming Mm -hmm. from, look, we've thrown all this money at this research. We really believe in this vaccine. But simultaneously, you know, parallel to this, here are a bunch of tools for you to start working on your body composition. You know, start, you know, creating community. Here's some things we're going to do to put power in your hands so that while we're going through this, you can start positively impacting your own health. But that was not the case. So again, I stand squarely in the fucking middle. If we truly care about our nation's health, where is a discussion on the mental health crisis? Where is a discussion on the obesity epidemic and all these things that are continuing to kill people now this COVID thing has come and gone? Great points, James. You know, that's that's something that I remember, you know, I'm I'm a little older, so graduated high school in eighty two. So in the in the late seventies and eighties, there were no really maybe one in between two classes obese children in class that you could identify as obese. It might be somebody a little bit chubby, but really one, maybe. Uh we just you know, we live in the country. We walk back and forth to school. I mean, there were so many just activities you didn't McDonald's, I didn't need it at a fast food place until I was probably 16 or 17 one time. And it about made me sick because it was so dang greasy. It was Kentucky Fried Chicken. I remember it, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, you just, you, you, now it is, it is, you get, they get vouchers to go to McDonald's, right? So they can eat, you know, free, free cheese, free chicken, free food, whatever. Uh, and, and that's probably the worst nutrition that you can get any of those fast foods they say that the the least worst of them all is a taco bell or something like that mexican food but even then you know it's 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 all processes it's and it's not not necessary so in medical school when you and i want to allude back to that there was probably a week of nutrition which was like just one couple hours a day and they're like oh well you have a nutritionist that'll handle that at the hospital I'm sitting there going, I want to learn this stuff. So I had to learn it on my own afterwards. And we, and, you know, you have people that have their interests and, and I got into it and, and, uh, and do what I do. But yeah, the, the, the disparity and the, the ability of, here's, here's a good one, the ability to recruit um, soldiers now, sailors, airmen, and Marines into the military that could pass the PT test that we had back then is virtually, I'm going to say probably sitting at about one to two, maybe Five percent of the people that are coming in now could pass that PT test, the one that we had. 
and it's gotten easier and easier as we've gone along. And uh, then you, you see where they change the standards uh, and try to make it unisex because the military is used as a test pool for society. Now you're going to do it there first. You know, we went from don't ask, don't tell to uh, it doesn't matter. You could do whatever you want to where now I'm going to pay for you to have a sex change after you finish basic training and then we'll pull you out of the unit for about a year. And then when you finish that, then you can go to work. Well, that's where we're at. I got no problem with that lifestyle. It doesn't matter to me. I had guys that were homosexual. I'm not. It, do, it doesn't matter in my unit. But as long as you could pull me off the battlefield and you could fight, shoot, move, communicate, medicate, I don't care what you do. It's not my business. And it shouldn't be put in my face either. And to my last officer, officer evaluation reports, and I'm getting off a little bit off subject here, but it's just a, it's a sign of the times is uh, how, the, how crazy things are is you have to sign this thing saying that you adopt, uh, you accept all uh, like equal opportunity, but it's on steroids. So I, I must check off each box like, okay, yeah, um, all the letters of the alphabet, LGBTQIT. Uh, I don't even understand what I'm signing here. Why do I need that to get another rank? It has nothing to do with my ability to, for the merits of what I do it for my job. This is why are we wasting our time on these subjects? Why are we not? focusing on uh, the real things in life, which is uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, which in order to have that, you know, you, you need the four cornerstones, right? So you need your brain to be occupied. You need to, to you know, enhance that with, with education and with continued education. You need your body to be in good shape. You need, you need to have a physical uh, ability to, to move uh, and to, to go through life and not, not be challenged by a set of stairs. Uh, you, you need to, to eat properly. And you need to have, to me, a spiritual side as well. And that gives you the four cornerstones. And you could add more to, to, that, to that stool. But I think a four-legged stool is doing pretty good. We've lost that. And now it's, we, we focus so much more on just the fix, the quick fix, and the, and the escape from reality on games and TVs and computers and all that. And I, I've gotten away from it now. I don't watch anything. This is probably the, last, the first thing I've watched in a while is me and you talking. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's so many kind of red flags as far as the mental health crisis. They just manifest in many ways, whether it's narcissism on social media, whether it's um, the addiction to food. I mean, there's so many different areas, and I think that's what we're seeing now. You know, people's sexuality, is, you know, and I've just worked with um, one of the, the people I work with in the stunt show that I do who's just you know, transitioning at the moment, and, and good for her. You know, I mean, that's that's in the individual person's that's thing. Yeah, exactly. So, but the health, you know, the health of the nation is my business because I was the guy that pulled the sheet over the people when we couldn't bring them back, you know? So that's coming from kindness and compassion. Now, with with that mental health crisis, I'd just love to touch on the border before we get to, to your 9-11 story. This is my personal you know, view, and, I, and I, we talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago, but as a paramedic, I got to see the epic failure of drug prohibition. I, I pulled the sheets over the addicts. I pulled the sheets over the the prostitute that was murdered, the homeless guy that died in his sleep, the you know the gang banging fifteen year old. Um, and then I also got to see you know like not not just like I said the 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 overdose itself, but the the violence that was attached to it. And this was in in Anaheim was one of the big ones, which is you know very very close to the border again. Yeah. So through my eyes. This so-called war on drugs that's supposedly supposed to save everyone from the you know the, the the demons of addiction 
when you look at the the creation of it, it was born out of job um, justification and racism ultimately back in the 30s. We've had almost a hundred year longitudinal studies study now. We have such violence in our streets as themselves. We have such violence on the border. My personal opinion, having witnessed and sat down with people in other countries that made addiction, addiction, not selling, not smuggling, but addiction, a medical problem, not a legal problem, and seeing how they've resolved so many of these issues, I personally view the war on drugs as a complete fucking disaster. And it's even, you know, underlined further when our own veterans have to go overseas to get effective PTSD treatment for serving this country. So with you working on the border, with you having a medical background, with you having almost four decades in the military, what is your perspective of that issue? Okay, so, you know, watching, and and, and here's an interesting thing. This is going to help a little bit. When we deployed in special forces specifically, sometimes we have partner forces and agencies we work with. And one of them is the Drug Enforcement Agency. We've done things with them on the border, and I've done things with them in Afghanistan, uh, where they're out there doing poppy eradication of programs to try to do that. <laughs> it's a dangerous business. Um, but uh, what I've seen is that the, the, this thing is a cycle. This thing is a cycle, and it starts with demand, okay, to me. This is just me. It starts with demand. The demand is so great because we've created a society of, of weak-minded people that, are, that have needs that started by, really, doctors giving them pain medicine. When they can't get that, they find something illicit. That's where it starts. Okay, Our doctors are just as guilty for starting this as, as the people pushing the drugs or bringing them across the border. And so, not all doctors. Some doctors. I mean, I'm really slamming on doctors today, but it's just that uh, I don't like 75% of them. But, uh, you know, so we, we look at that demand and we say, okay, we, we think that if we slow down the demand, that it'll just all stop. No, because this is, this is a supply system. It's just as much like I'm ordering things from Amazon. It's a system that just keeps flowing. It keeps flowing. And so, well, the demand. All right, so then let's arrest the people that are using. Okay, well, let's, let's try that. Let's see how that works out. Well, right now in the county that I work in, uh, where I'm in Texas, um, there are 600 people waiting in jail right now for drug-related charges that have been sitting there for over six months, probably seven months. No, no speedy trial, no due process for narcotics-related crimes. Crimes, okay, quote-unquote crimes. Now, do I think that there are crimes if uh, you're trafficking in large quantities of uh, fentanyl? Yeah, probably, since a large quantity of fentanyl could kill most people in this state. So, you know, put it in the water supply, and that's what it will do. Um, do I think it's a crime if, uh, you know, some dudes walk around and let's say across this state line, it's illegal to smoke marijuana. And on this side, it is. It is it, it, it's not illegal. Well, no, not really. It's, it's a misdemeanor charge. And then when I was a sheriff deputy reserve, uh, I just go, hey, man, you can't be driving and smoking your dube. OK, you got to take it to the house. And I knew most people in my county and I was pretty cool with them. I drove a few people home and, and made sure they got in, got in OK. Dr- drinking, too. And, and actually on the body, if we really get down to it, the, the liver gets more damage from alcohol than it ever, uh, the body ever did from, from marijuana. Now we're not going to go down that rabbit hole of, you know, argue which is worse, but, uh, or, or better. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So making it a crime, all that does is just, con- it, it continues to, um, to fill up jails. Number one, they don't rehab. They're, they're not going to rehab. They're going to continue to get it inside the jail anyway. They're going to find something else that they can find because they have this 
this uh, this habit that was built by somebody. Look, uh, a drug dealer when or a pusher when they push it on you, they're going to give a little bit to try it. They're going to get you hooked. Now, I had a, a family member that got hooked on coke really bad, uh, and uh, it was he said it was the first time he tried it, he was done. That was it. He, he loved it, and then he spent a hundred thousand dollars the next year on cocaine. Uh, ruined his life, his marriage, and everything. Uh, he said it's turned around, but he got rehabbed, right? And so that's where we need to spend more of our efforts on, as a, from a medical standpoint. And I have worked at VAs. I've done some locum work at VAs and had people on the psych- psychiatric ward. There were veterans, that, you know, brothers and sisters of mine, older, but still, I was taking care of them uh, on rotations. And uh, yeah, I mean, some of them were in there to to rehab, uh, to detox, to whatever. I mean, it, it's it's a, this, this this psychologically uh, challenge, not challenged, uh, but we're just we're just hit on all sides. Then you add the mandates, putting on masks, isolation. You add that to it. We look at twenty two a day. We talk about in the military where there's twenty two suicides a day. I would venture to say that uh, it's probably reflective of society. Uh, that society is probably right around those same numbers. If you take any any group, but uh, definitely in, in the military, you add the, the, the stress of war, but, you know, not everybody's doing war. I mean, a lot of people get deployed, but not everybody does war. So, you know, I think there, there's a higher propensity of guys in, in, our, in the units I was in, uh, either SEALs or Green Berets or Rangers, uh, you know, infantry guys, paratroopers, they're on the front lines, really. Support guys aren't, but they still get the stress, and the stress still works on you. And the stress back home with the, with the, uh, you know, the mandates, the economy, people can't get jobs. Uh, you add that to it. Uh, sometimes the drugs are an escape. But let's say mom goes out and decides she's going to use some illicit drugs. She gets rolled up and then she goes to jail. What happens to her kids? What happens to the second and third order effects of all this, which could probably be fixed? I've got another family member that has a brand new baby and uh, she went through a heroin deal. And thank God that she didn't go to jail for what she could have went to jail for, which was operating a vehicle under the influence. But uh, she went to rehab, and now she's raising her kid and doing great. It took a while, but if we had that same amount of time of her sitting in jail, where would they be? Where would the kid be in some foster home and all that? So there's second and third order effects that we can't we can't quantify in this. So I tend to agree more with you on the on the rehab side of it. Uh, and then you got to just remember that there are those out there that are cut your throat to bring some fentanyl across and those guys we deal with differently yeah no i agree completely i got one of my guests bc saunders was talking about rather than chasing the addict chasing the violence and i love that mentality you know there's there's That's a different it. kind of person and you know that multi-generational element has created some monsters out there and people that are selling people that are smuggling if you remove the addicts from the legal system now you free up the the police resources and the legal resources and the court resources to really start honing down on the real shitbags of the world. And then you simultaneously address the mental health element. You cut the, the, the demand head off the snake. And now you see, because of what I've heard of people recently telling me that they got um, their roots are in Colombia. And they say that that company, that excuse me, that country has gone through a metamorphosis again and is now becoming a beautiful, safe place because I think cocaine isn't the drug of choice anymore. But now that 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 demon has kind of spread all the way up to the Mexican-American border, and that's where we're seeing such horrendous violence now. So you take away the demand for illicit drugs, you put the, the power back in the medical community for our addicts, 
imagine the ripple effect not only on our own streets and the, the tension between law enforcement and our civilians, but also immigration. If you create safety back in a country, you, you, you remove the violence that we created in Mexico. Are you going to have as many people fleeing or are they going to want to actually stay back in their country again? It sounds simplified, but ultimately the damage we did was simple too. Some shitbag said drugs are now illegal. And then look hey. at what we've, we've viewed with both of our eyes through our careers. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, I wonder how many, you know, that you've transported that, uh, you know, that ended up being called in route or when you hit the, you know, hit the ER bay. Uh, and I, you know, me receiving on that end, uh, even, even downrange, you know, we, we, we see, you know, uh, it's an issue we got to deal with every once in a while and it's tough, you know, cause you, 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 you think if somebody had intervened a little bit earlier, just a little bit early, you could have saved this one. And, uh, and that's hard because you, you look at this young person, usually the younger person that's in that. And, uh, you know, I have, like I said, a couple of family members and prayed for them, went and spent time with them, working. But uh, sometimes it takes what, it, what they say it takes you know, some people six, seven times to go to, you know, Alcoholic Anonymous before they can actually, you know, put it down. I mean, so we, we're human. We, we, we have habits and sometimes those habits will, you know, I, I quit. I keep trying to quit Copenhagen. It's just not working. So, you know, I like my snuff. But, uh, you know, we, we all we all have a, a habit uh, of some sort. And it's just, you know, hopefully it's not going to pull you down a, into a. Bad rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to get back on on your kind of timeline for a moment because I know nine eleven yep. was extremely pivotal from for you. Not only the event, but you actually found yourself in New York. So, talk to me about oh yeah, uh, seeing yeah. that through a physician's eyes at that moment, and then getting to Ground Zero, and then and then where that took you as far as special operations. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a good good start there, or uh, a good story. Uh, at the time, I was up there in nine uh, eleven. Uh, that morning, I was at Groton, Connecticut at a submarine base. And I was in the reserves. I had always kept one foot in the military one way or another reserves, and it was active reserves. And I was going to be going to a course for undersea medicine because the Navy has a really good undersea medicine course. I wanted to be a hyperbaric oxygen therapy specialist to take care of divers. And so, uh, and, that, and that's a big job that we have in soft communities is diving, dive teams and, and then halo teams as well. So while we're up there and we're at we're going to class that morning, and then they, you know, alarms go off. This Groton, Connecticut is really close to New York City. Uh, they say, hey, you know, New York's being hit. Everybody come inside. Are we possibly going to be bases got to shut down, going to ThreatCon Delta? Okay, you know, everything's freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. Oh my God, we're going to get hit. And it, and it you know, it, we saw what happened, what unfolded. But from that, twelve hours, probably fourteen hours later, I was at Ground Zero. Uh, as a medical guy, you know, that's, that's where we went. And so uh, on the ground, uh, came up and ended up in the corner of uh, southeast corner of the big pile of rubble, uh, which was on the cross street that went over to Chinatown, was called Chambers Street. I remember looking up at it, my last name. I thought, well, I guess I belong here. But, you know, still dealing with uh, uh, recovery so much there was no rescue at that point it's all recovery at that time but really uh, there's other buildings that are around that area that had to be secured and you got to send people out and go look for uh, in the early phases of anything chaotic like this it's just uh, who can we save right now and how do we take care of the people that are there doing 
the first responders, really what we did. So we, we augmented the first responders that were there. So firemen, inhalation injuries, uh, law enforcement, et cetera. The FEMA people started rolling in. But I spent three days there uh, on the ground. And uh, I remember looking up at night and just seeing that glow that uh, with that smoke still rising from this and dust still coming out and that stench, you know, that smell of uh, just, oh, you're a fireman, you know, you know, the, the smell of when a, when a building uh, not only uh, goes down, but the dust, but the, uh, the smoke. I can't say that I smelled anything having to do with fuel. I would imagine all the fuel would have been ignited from planes and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, the, the, aftermath of that was just uh very you know sense of smell i said because of the attachment of the cryptoform plate under your nose there it goes right to your brain it can bring you back a memory like that and sometimes when you pass a fire or something i'm sure for you you you, you have those memories and you look back and think wow and it, and it comes back to you and get a chill even for me uh but from that day i remember we went back to uh to groton uh and i saw i saw some pretty heroic things that day um people doing you know coming out and people that were trapped in other buildings around the area where when the debris came down there was other buildings that were surrounding where they were trapped in little pockets and, and bringing people out uh pretty heroic um going back to the base and then you know going back home uh you know there was a different the, the country was together probably the most i had ever seen you know, i've been in the army since uh, 83 i came in under reagan uh you know, infantry kid going to Fort Benning at 18 by the time I finished basic. And it, it was post-Vietnam, but it was not that far out past Vietnam. All my instructors were Vietnam veterans um, in, in Fort Benning. There was a different uh, feeling about the military. But after that 9-11 deal, it, it's like we just we solidified as a country. It was the closest I've ever seen us. People were going to church. People were uh, taking care of each other. You could really sense that love. Uh, and that was that was a pretty amazing thing, and it, we we've been touching on this a couple of times back and forth here, and I think there's a there's a common theme in this. It's what I have been seeking my whole life in the military. Thirty nine years of doing this, putting a uniform on, either guard, active, reserve, going down range, numerous trips, probably twelve different soft deployments for me, uh, several of which were combat deployments, uh, others were different kinds of special operation missions. I always, from the very beginning, I kept this book and it was a little, um, like not a right in the rain. They didn't have them back then. It was just a little binder and it was a little green army binder. And I would write there the, the good things I saw people do and the bad things I saw. Don't do what Sergeant so-and-so did. That's stupid. Do what this Lieutenant did. He did this for me. I was in Korea. He took my post cause I was freezing for an hour. This Lieutenant came out of nowhere and said, Hey, let me take your post. Could go warm up. All right. So, no. Okay. But in that book, I also put down what are the truest virtues of a warrior, right? I was seeking that. I was studying ancient history. I was trying to figure it out, especially through my family's Spartan lineage and my, and my American side, you know, the warrior lineage. What is it that a warrior really is? Is it about medals? Is it about accolades? Is it about, uh, you know, glory in battle? Is it about shooting bad guys in the face? What's this all about? Because sometimes we like to pump our chest and you know, and, and I and I always tell the kids when they come in, they're like, I can't wait to get to combat. I'm like, beware of what you wish for, son. Because when it comes to you, you know, <laughs> you'll find out, but uh, you're not going to be wanted that much. Uh, and if you do, you might be a one percenter. I better go check in with the shrinks. But, uh, but honestly, 
the truest virtue of worry. And, and, and Stephen Pressfield wrote about this and it corroborated my thoughts in a book called The Gates of Fire. Um, wonderful book about the Battle of Thermopylae. It's a fictional book, but it's based upon the Battle of Thermopylae, 300 Spartans with about 7,000 or so allied forces in Greece held off hundreds of thousands of Persians in a bat, at a pass in northern Greece and, uh, and held off uh, enough time for the Greece, Greek reserve troops to, to get ready to fight. And a year later, they pushed them all back out. We maintained what would be Western civilization of the early starts. It was a pretty important battle. Truest virtue of a warrior is love. That's it. It boils down to that. It's like a mother's love for a child. It's, it's because we don't hate what's in front of us when we're in battle. We love what's next to us and what's behind us, our families. And I think when you get that right, and you, and you get over the whole, oh, I can't talk about love. I'm a soldier. I got to be tough. No, when you get over that, and you really just get, get like to the, real, the reality, uh, you in the back of your rig, you know, showing up on a site. Yeah, it's business. I mean, you got to go in there and, and you got to take charge of the command of the situation. You, you know, right here, I'm sitting on the street corner. I look out, a car crashes, turns over sideways. Next thing you, you know, you, you're, you're dealing with a potential for a car on fire. I've had to roll up on one of those too as a, as a deputy. And you got to jump in there and you got to pull somebody out and you got to take a risk and you get serious. But deep down inside, you're not saying, well, I'm going to do this because I love this person so much. It's because you love humanity. It's because you, 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 you understand that there's, there's right and there's wrong. And there's, there's, it's just darkness and there's, there's, there's light, you know, and, and that's the side that we choose to be on. Uh, does it mean we're perfect? No, doesn't mean we're perfect. Does it mean we think right every time? No. But it means that we err on the side of doing what's right. And uh, that's love. That's what does it. Yeah. Well, that really aligns with something that I've been talking about recently. When, when you look at a lot of fire police, you know, military that are deep in their career, there is a, there is a, a danger of disregarding the soft side of the yin yang and becoming a round circle and thinking that you're Superman, you know, and, and I'm a Marine, I'm a firefighter. And when they transition out, a lot of times it's a real struggle because you've lost your purpose, your identity, your tribe, all these things that you clung to, and rightly so, mm -hmm. but you forgot that the very thing that took most of us into this profession, if you weren't just doing it for benefits or, as you said, accolades and, you know, beating your chest, but the majority, it was kindness and compassion that brought you into this profession. You wanted to protect, you wanted to serve, you wanted right. to, you know, do all these things. And that, those are all soft. Those are all, I think if I got it right, the yang, the the black. Mm -hmm. But then when you're, you know, forward, forward, you know, deployed forward and you're in, you're in a combat zone, if I'm in a fire or, you know, cutting someone out of a car, that's when you're in your flow state. And that's when you absolutely need that hard side to, to kick in. That's when you've got a job to do and you can't be hesitant. But after that kindness and compassion towards the people you're protecting, towards your fellow soldiers, towards yourself, if we mm -hmm. disregard that, then we're missing that walk softly part of that whole equation. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, a, that's taken me a while to get to. And I've, I've, I've ebbed and flowed with it as well. And I've seen it, you know, with, with my compadres in, in uniform. Uh, guys go through hard times. You know, you come home from a trip, you've been fighting all night and sleeping all day, or not all day, but three, four hours a day. Your cortisol levels are off. You know, you come back and you, because of the diurnal rhythms of the, of the sun and rising and falling, 
at the end of the day, your cortisol's off, your testosterone's off, you come back, it's in the gutter, and guys are just, you know, beat up and you know, getting divorces and they're drinking and doing all this stuff. And you're looking for other reasons and to uh to to medicate yourself with whatever it is, if it's a bar fight or if it's uh, you know, like me going out and riding a horse and chasing cattle, uh, we, we chase those drugs, so to speak. Uh, that's what, what gets us through. But really if you keep that balance, that yin and that yang, uh, you, you know, there was a, a, a Zen master and a student. And the, and the student came to the Zen master. You may have heard this one. And he says, how do I achieve enlightenment? He said, well, you know, you have to balance. It's a, it's a Zen thing. It's a, it's a balance of good and evil. Not evil, but, but business in my, in my sense. Business. You got it. But that's, that's hard. That's a hard skill. And then the light, which is a soft skill, which is to be able to take a child, which I've had this happen. Somebody hand me a child that's burning on the battlefield and say, sir, here you go. We just put her out. She's yours. Get her back. Okay. And then you got, and you, and you just, you know, you embrace that and you, and you do what you got to do. But the Zen master then says, but there's one thing you must do before you achieve the enlightenment. He says, what's that? He goes, I need you for 10 years to haul water and chop wood. And the kid goes out, he hauls water and he chops wood, right? Comes back 10 years later. I'm ready, Master. I have, I have I've found the enlightenment. Now what do I do? And he says, continue to haul water and chop wood. All right? So when you get there, you know, I'm at the end, end of this career. What am I doing right now? I'm in a different fight. It's not, it's not a kinetic fight, but it's a different fight. I'm fighting the mandates. I'm working with, you know, some lawsuits that are pretty heavy uh, in, the, in the country right now to uh, pull the mandates. Uh, it's a different fight. Still requires the same hardness and softness. Go to balance that. That's the best warriors that I've ever worked with. And some of them you'd never know if you just met them out on the road. You just wouldn't know. They they won't have a sticker across their forehead that says U.S. Army Rangers. I mean, you're proud of it. I mean, I'll always be proud of those things, but that's not my identity. My identity is, is a totally different thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to just hit on one more topic before we're going to progress into some closing questions. But you have, you know, so many years wearing a uniform in, in so many different arenas, including standing in New York City on 9-11. Um, but this is a two-part question. And the reason I always ask anyone who's kind of seen combat is we get a very polarized view of war when you're a civilian. Either the, the kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're all a bunch of baby killers, where the reality is obviously the men and women, children more often than not that we send, you know, are, are as you said, they're protecting the men to, and women to the left and to the right of them. And, and there's a much mm-hmm. more human story. So... Was there, firstly, was there a moment where you found yourself in whatever country it was where regardless of the politics that may have sent you there, you realized that there were bad people that needed to be taken care of? Very moment. <laughs> yes. I can say, yes, there was a moment. 12 May 2004, great coordinate, Mike Bravo, 456-789, in the morning, southwest corner of... Uh, coming across the July 14 bridge in Baghdad. Yeah, that was a moment. Um, it, it will be burned in my brain forevermore. Uh, that's what's called my alive day. Sometimes you get an alive day. Sometimes you get two or three alive days. Some people get them. Um, and to me, uh, when you're ambushed and you're uh, a light target, you know, a small, lighter uh, target, one of my jobs as a battalion surgeon uh, at the time was 
well, my job in general is I'm special staff to the commander. I'm responsible for the health and well-being of all the troops underneath me, and to, to include coalition forces, et cetera, but also to uh, take care of, you know, sometimes you get, you know, roll up a bad guy and you got to take care of him. Uh, and then civilian, uh, minimize civilian casualties. And, uh, you know, probably the worst day uh, of my military career was not that day, the 12th of May. It was about a week before that when a civilian uh, bus was caught in an IED attack uh, right outside of our base. It was, a, it was a van filled with 155 howitzer shells, and it went off. And it left a crater the size of that I could stand almost to my mid-thigh. And, and that tells you a lot when it's a, you know, a crater, it blew upward and left a crater that deep below it. You know, there was, there was body parts everywhere. People in, and I, you know, me and one other medic ran out first. And uh, some people were still alive, some weren't. And uh, 40 some odd people that we, we triaged in about 30 minutes. Uh, we didn't dispo. We didn't get them done. But that was probably the worst day. And that showed me evil. I didn't see evil face to face until the 12th of May, which came sometime a little bit after, a few weeks later. Uh, we just got done with the first Fallujah. We were doing out, outer uh, perimeter. Uh, Marines took Fallujah. And that would have been in May, uh, April, 04. And uh, we were doing some other stuff on the outside of town. But then uh, in the area that was really not that bad, that we didn't think in this grid sector, anybody that's been there will know Mike Bravo's sector was not that bad. Uh, but the Mahdi Army, which was Muqtada al Sadr's guys of Sadr City, northeast part of Baghdad, uh, they had different plans that they decided to get in the fight. And uh, they hadn't really done a lot of IED ambushes, um, but they decided to hit a three-vehicle convoy of really unarmored Humvees with a uh, complex attack. So a complex attack is an IED mixed with some small arms fire and possibly some RPG stuff. Well, that day, 12th of May, 2004, a great coordinate, as I told you, uh, at that time, three vehicle convoy, two gun trucks, one in front, one in back, one gun truck in the middle with all the antennas on it. Well, if you've got all the antennas on your truck, you're probably going to be the target because you got the you're the command. And so uh, that was me. I was in that vehicle. I was riding TC up front on the right. The 155 shell, which is a howitzer shell, 155 millimeter shell, is uh, about the size of a shoebox, uh, maybe in diameter and, uh, you know, obviously a conical shape. It uh, was buried in the road, shallow, buried, um, command detonated, meaning somebody pressed a button, either with a cell phone attached wire, but it was wire command detonated, and then it instigated, they uh, initiated a, a, a complex attack in kind of an L shape because you're coming, we were coming off of a uh, road uh, on a clover leaf and got hit almost not dead center of the truck, but dead center of the clover leaf coming down. And luckily, we were driving just a little to the right of it. So it lifted the truck up a little bit, caught it on fire in the back, killed my gunner. Um, I wore his bracelet on my wrist. Uh, his mom uh, said to me uh, a few things that I'll never forget. And this is where I, where I saw the enemy and saw evil. But then I saw the evil in the, in the, on the streets. Because at that time, I, my windows are blown out. Everybody's pretty much dead or dying in the truck but me. And uh, I am now trying to stumble around. I can't find a radio that works because my antennas were blown off and I've got to get on a different radio to talk to a guy ahead of me. And I, so I walk away and going through this smoke and I remember the LT from the front vehicle, the Lieutenant said later on, he said, sir, 
I was like John Wayne when you came walking through that smoke because everything looked like it was gone in that truck, and then here you come through. I was like, well, I had no idea that there were people shooting. I couldn't hear. I couldn't see. You know, but anyway, we get through that day. Uh, but I met evil face to face because we had we had to engage uh, an enemy that was close in, in contact. Uh, and then we got a lot of help. We called the sheriff, so to speak. And the sheriff shows up and helps you. And you get off the X and, and, and the rest of us survived. But that was the first time that I saw it where somebody's really trying to kill me now. If I live there and somebody, some occupying force came in, so I have to understand it from two standpoints, like my dad's standpoint as a partisan fighter in World War II against the Germans, and then the communists that came in afterwards and he fought them. Uh, if somebody's occupying your country, well, I mean, are they truly evil? I mean, that's the question I always ask myself, is are they truly evil? Well, now we're going to fast forward to the real evil. And this story is, is one that, that uh, I just told yesterday that, it's not that it's hard to tell, but it's hard to fathom. And I want people to listen and understand that if, if you could imagine convincing a mother that to strap a bomb on her child is worthy of the cause. Okay, doing an L-shaped ambush against an occupying force, I got it. I understand my enemy's point of view. I don't hate them for doing that. They're my enemy. They don't like me here. We're enemies. We're going to go head to head. Taking a mother and telling her that it's okay to strap a bomb on your child and send him up to the American gate and kill those guards, to me, that's evil. That's evil. The little girl that they handed me on the battlefield, the uh, my dive team, it was a, a operational detachment alpha dive team. Um, they brought a little girl back, and she was on fire back to me. I get her. We take her off the battlefield. We go back to the rear. we got 72 hours. We're going to cut her legs off. That's what the surgeons are telling me. All right, well, we'll get her back to the States then. We, we figured it out. We did some homework. We couldn't use a military jet, but we did you know, our Green Beret magic. We got this girl back to the States in 72 hours. She made it to Shriners Hospital in Boston, and they saved her legs by doing skin grafts. Right. She didn't grow up a bilateral amputee on the streets of Baghdad because her whole family was whacked by uh, Taliban. There you go. There's another evil. And the, and the kid that they sent to the gate, that... that well, he was coming back to see me, a follow-up for his, his uh, prosthetic legs that we had bought him. See, he was, he was caught in enemy fire once, uh, and it was an explosion that took both of his legs off below the knee. So he didn't have prosthetics, so he walked around on a – he shuffled around on like a cardboard box and begged for money. We saw him outside our gate. We felt sorry for him. We brought him in. We, we sized his legs up. We sent back to the rear for some prosthetics from the States. They showed up, and his mom got to watch – Watch him walk for the first time in like three years with a walker, right? With these prosthetic legs until he showed back up for a checkup and they had packed his legs full of uh, composite um, type material of homemade explosives. Now you tell me that's not evil. That's when I saw evil. Yeah, I can see evil in the sense of somebody wanting to kill me, but I understand that. This I don't understand. I don't understand how you can convince somebody under a faith of some sort of religion. And I give it... I've studied Islam, and I and I and I I recognize that there are many things that are real similar, but I can't find in there where it says that it's okay to sacrifice your child in such a heinous way in the name of defending your country. I said I can understand people wanting to defend their country; that's what they believe they're doing, but that goes to a different kind of evil. So that's not the only stories that we saw like that. But that if that hopefully that'll 
help your listeners to understand, at least from my point of view, what I saw. Well, I mean, thank you, because first you answer both sides. The other side was were there moments of kindness and compassion and what you've told us about the, the burned girl, what you told us about that young man before he was you know, hijacked the second time, that shows the other side. And <clears throat> what we ask our men and women to do when we send them overseas and to see you know, endure these horrors. Um, and and you know, I'll be very, very clear, the people of those countries, we, we paint the whole country with the same brush. Oh, we're at war with Iraq. We're at war with Afghanistan. No, we're not. There are horrible people in those countries that are terrorizing their own people. The same as I'm sure if you looked inside Russia now, you're not going to have a nation that's like, yeah, we'd love to own uh, Ukraine. Let's all go and fight. Yeah. Are you fucking insane? No, of course not. <laughs> so, but... That being said, you touched on a really important point, and it seems like especially your community, Tim and, and Jason McCarthy and some of the others that have come on the show, and I'd love to get your perspective of this, as again, a complete uh-huh. layman, I'm not I'm not in any way related to, to the military specifically, but there, you don't have to be a genius to figure out if you take too long in someone's country, you are going to start generating more and more enemies as the same way as if someone invaded the UK, the US, wherever, and stayed, you know, hunting whoever in our country. At some point, you're going to go, wait a second, I thought you were going to leave. So I hear over and over and over again, a lot of your community say, look, there were things that we did need to do in in Afghanistan. When we went in, you know, we need to kill these these key targets. You want to shut down the, you know, the training camps. Um, you know, bolster the, the local forces and then leave again. Instead, we were there for 20 years. You hear a lot of the kind of industrial military complex elements and the same as we've been talking about healthcare. There's so much money in pharmaceuticals. Where's the checks and balances to stopping them from pushing the drugs on people and getting that proactive, you know, healthcare element. I see the same with war. You know, there's times where we have to do what we've got to do, but where's the checks and balances to get us out rather than make trillions for these companies while our men and women come home in coffins. So what is your perspective of when you, you were in Iraq too, Iraq and or Afghanistan, with this kind of Monday morning quarterback perspective now, what we maybe should have done versus what actually happened? Perfect. Well, so if I was a Secretary of Defense, this is what I would recommend to the President. All right, sir, so let's just go with each separate one. Uh, Afghanistan. If we say that the intelligence and everything is correct, all right, just we're, we're basing it on correct assumptions and intelligence operations. Okay. So this guy Osama bin Laden, he, he sends some planes and he, and he blows up the towers in New York. All right. If that's the fact, if that's what it is, then uh, yeah, we've got to go after that terrorist. Well, it doesn't require 20 years and 40,000 troops in there at any given time. It's pretty much what was, what was running in the Bagram area. Uh, give or take, and I know it flex to higher and lower during different phases. It doesn't take 20 years to do that. Those boys did it. Fifth group guys went in, and they uh, linked up with the Northern Alliance. They fought it. They fought a fight, a good fight, uh, with using uh, very minimal uh, boots on the ground, as the term goes. Uh, quintessential uh, UW unconventional warfare mission. Quintessential, perfect. Link up with the locals fight a, a, a force that is uh, a bad actor nation, if you will, the Taliban, and uh, beat them back and then give some hope, give some training. But uh, if I were to give the rest of the, to the, uh, the plan here, sir, Mr. President, Miss President, here's the rest of the plan. Sit outside in Tajikistan, 
we, we occupy a base outside there, we can plus it up with whatever kind of reactionary forces we needed. And we can, and we can train guys on the outside because I've trained guys on the inside in Afghanistan. Uh, Kandak, I did one in 2008, the 22207, uh, trained their Kandak. That's a battalion. That's 615 Mohicans that I had to train from basic training to field them to combat. When I got done with that job and I came back home, and I had Paul Ryan. He wasn't the Speaker of the House at the time. He was a congressman. And he asked me, he said, well, what do you think? Can you come to D.C. and talk about your experiences as a uh, as training actual troops? And how long will it take us to field 30,000 troops? How long will we need to stay? I didn't know that that's what we were here to do. But, okay, if that's what we're here to do, I'll brief that. No problem. These are smart people. They know history, right? Did they read his Alexander and his ex exploits into Afghanistan? Not sure. They read about the Brits going into Afghanistan and fighting the Pashtuns. Not sure. Did they read the barrel that went over the mountain? Russians' uh, point of view on their visit to Afghanistan. I wonder if they read that. No, not sure. Well, I'm just going to explain to them a few things. And I look around at the subcommittee I'm talking to, and, and I say, hey, uh, y'all remember this little war they called Korean War? And they say, huh? yeah. Okay. You remember this little war they called World War II? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, we still got troops in Germany, and we still got them in Korea. And those happened a while back. Now, we don't have an occupying force in Germany or in Korea right now that we're fighting with on the ground, but we are here. So if you're expecting us to give you an estimate based upon the 617 guys that I trained, that I told the validating committee when they came over, hey, you probably should fail these guys. They can't fight their way out of a paper sack. It's not about pride for me. I'm not just going to pass them because they, they wear their uniform and put their hat on straight. No, these guys suck. I mean, it's just the way it was. There's so many. You can't just take a society that's made up of 20 different tribes and go, okay, today you're in charge. You're, you're a Hazara. And you're a Pashtun. I know that you're more militant, but you're lower rank. And this Hazara is going to run you around. No, they don't do that. They end up cutting the Hazara's throat and throwing him out behind the shed. All right? So there goes that Sergeant Major. Let's bring up a new one. All right? So that's the deal. things we're dealing with, which doesn't happen in our army. Right? You may not like your sergeant, but you're not cutting his throat and throwing him out behind the shed. So they, there's a different set of challenges. And then, to me, I don't know. I kind of said in 2008, hey, let's not train these guys to be too good at shooting because we might be fighting them in about 10 years, right? Because as a Green Beret, I'm always thinking about the second and third order effects. I don't know. You know, I just want to watch out how well we train them. Yeah, we'll train them to defend themselves and do that, but let's not give them too many secrets. <laughs> um, but and I, and I joke a little bit there, but when they finally got down to it, and I'm talking the day being the Congress people that were listening to this, this briefing post uh, embedded training team with the Afghan battalion, they said, uh, well, then in your estimate, how many years then? How many years? That's what they want. They want numbers, right? They don't want reality. They want numbers, optics, uh, optics. Okay. Well, I said, give me a hundred years. We'll get you 30,000 troops. A hundred years. We're still in Korea. We're still in Germany. Those people are, are functional. This is a country that's not functional. How do you expect us to make it a functional army out of a dysfunctional country? We, Green Berets, we make, we, we turn people into a guerrilla force who then can eventually transition into a fighting force. 
but we can't do magic in that short a period of time, right? You're talking about creating an army for a country that is still fractionated. Anyway, so that's that's my theory there. Stay outside of the country. Let's not stay here and keep training. Iraq, um, I think it was the uh, a son's wish to get back after his father didn't go all the way. We're talking about the Bush clan uh, all the way to Baghdad that he was going to have one better. And so instead of just taking out Saddam Hussein and with the weapons of mass destruction, of which there potentially could have been some there, I, you know, I'm not going to give away operational security stuff, but, uh, but was it a threat to the United States? I don't think so. I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, but then it, once you're in, this is, this was a mistake I did see made by president Obama. Once you're in that place, you don't just create a vacuum by leaving immediately. Because then the ISIS was formed, and then we went back and we had to fight them, right? So if we're if we're in that fight, um, it, ISIS is formed from the vacuum of pulling out too quick, pulling these troops out too quick, and then what happened when we lost every uh, when we pulled everybody out of Afghanistan in a period of a few weeks? The same thing, you know. So another vacuum. We'll see the second and third order effects from that. Yeah, what is so so sad because I just saw and I wish I could remember the gentleman's name. I just posted about it yesterday, but one of our Marines that we lost in you know, in the bombing during the withdrawal, um, his brother almost a year to the day they had a memorial for him, and his brother actually took his own life just next to the the gravesite of his brother. So, again, you talk about you know third fourth order effects, whether it's the the children of an addict and one of my wife's friends i was just talking to a couple days ago has adopted his uh sister-in-law's daughter because she is deep deep in in the addiction hole now you look at the impact of our veterans whether they don't come home whether they come home home missing limbs whether they come home with so much trauma in their mind i mean when when we ask our men and women to put our uniform on and go overseas we have to understand the magnitude of that ask and the the people sending them there have the responsibility to have the plan, the staffing, the equipment to execute whatever needs to be done, but also get them home as many of them home as safely as possible and minimize the, you know, the, the impact on that country as well. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, that's exactly it. So yeah, that, that, that would be my advice. So if I was advising the president, well, I appreciate. I mean, that's the thing. I, I I know nothing, but I mean, with all these hundreds of interviews that I've done, we get to hear from the actual people that were there, whether they work for a fire department or you know they're a lawyer or whatever. I mean, it, hearing it from the horse's mouth is so important. And with with these two conflicts that we've been in recently, I've had people from Australia and the UK and the US and Canada, and you you get to paint a picture. And there's there's oh. a lot of a, alignment. So. Now, kind of like through the, the veteran town hall that um, uh, Sebastian Junger talks about, in, when we hear your voices, now the average person can start formulating their own perception. That, okay, this appears to be the real truth. you know. And so this is what we need to be asking questions now as citizens of this nation when people right. start posturing for the next conflict. You know, and that's, a, I think, the one of the, the pushes that I've seen lately on, on the uh, political scene is the political action committees made up of uh, bringing in candidates that were former military, especially, I noticed one particularly, 
focusing on Green Berets. And I, you know, I'm going to be biased here and say, yeah, I, I'm going to uh, say that if you if you if you have somebody that's a warrior diplomat, they, t- they tend to think a little bit deeper uh, w- about these second, third, fourth order effects because that that's the only thing that I know that completely closes the loop on outer and inner security in my mind when I'm downrange. Because if I start thinking about if I do this, then this will happen. Therefore, I'm using a logical explanation for how to keep my area of operations safe. Well, now we can take that and transpose it up to the bigger level, to the strategic level now, not tactical, and say, all right, that's the way we've got to think up here. So if I take an experienced operator, not necessarily kicked in a lot of doors, but just work in that environment, who can step back and see that and think in those realms and, and understand both the yin and the yang, right? That's the person that I want to be the next diplomat at the, at the UN with that particular region or the next person that stands up the next nation that we go to war with. If we decide to do that, I don't want some knucklehead that just, you know, used to work at Raytheon and then we're going to put you in charge of uh, making a decision for us. That's, that's not a, that's not a good thing. you got too many bad connections there, bro. You know? Yeah, no, I agree 100 percent. Absolutely. Well, I want to hit one more area before we go to some closing questions yeah. just very quickly. So, again, you had, you know, such a lengthy service. Um, you know, we talked about that transition being a struggle for some people. But one of the other compounding elements that I've seen over and over again is organizational stress or betrayal. Well, clearly at the tail end of your career you know there was an element of that as well so what was your transition like out for you personally going from so many years in uniform with the purpose and the tribe and and now kind of you know finding yourself out the other end um with you know with the, with that kind of bitter ending to such a, a, a story career you know there was a sergeant major once uh and crenshaw was his name he is his name he's retired the most, the smartest man I ever met when it came to Green Beret senior NCOs, senior non-commissioned officer, smartest guy. I mean, he was an 18 Delta before he was a medic, but he could, he, he knew more than I knew when it came to trauma. I mean, and, and I'm not saying that I'm up there, but he just knew the details. He knew the, the studies he knew everything. and his, his humility was amazing. And when he retired, he said, and he, and he got up there and he spoke his retirement speech because they gave him a going away ceremony. And he former Delta Force uh, support medic. I mean, he had, he had accolades of anything I've ever seen, but just the most stoic and uh, humble man. Yet I've, I've seen him, I've seen him do some serious heroic things in combat. Anyway, this guy he gets up and he gives his going away speech. Never once mentions himself in the whole speech. He talks about this guy and that guy, and this one, and that one that lifted him up through his career. It was the most, it was amazing, especially for somebody with his accolades. But he also said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, when you leave, if you've been in this long, it'll be bittersweet, but it will never be what you thought it would be. Where I'm lucky, I get to speech, I get to talk, you guys have, you know, thrown me this thing. But he said, tomorrow, in the, in the next Sergeant Major's meeting, the next Sergeant Major comes in, they're going to say, Sergeant Major Crenshaw, who? Because you can always be re- re- replaced, right? You know that as a as a firefighter, you know you you leave one station and the next day you know they miss you. Your friends missed you, but it's still going to go on. Rigs are still going to run on the on the next calls. So when I left, it was it was a little bit different in that uh, you know I'm in the in the guard, but I was supposed to be on orders for another year, and and uh, with that 
Alamo Battalion down on the border, Operation Lone Star, correct, protecting the border right now from the invasion that it is. We could go on for hours about that. But uh, when I left, uh, I went from, I won't say, I don't, I wasn't a golden child of anything, but let's say I was just a higher up level special operations surgeon than the typical surgeon, that, which I was before. Don't take anything away from that, but I just had a lot more, a lot more training. And I, I went through the course at a lot older age. And I was 45 when I went to selection. It was a little, little bit different for me. Um, but uh, I went from that guy. That, that pretty much could walk into any general's office and get sit down and have a good conversation. They would, would respect what I had to say or listen to me or take my advice when I'd say, hey, this many soldiers are taking the shots and look, I got a lot of them in the hospital. Okay, they'd listen to me. I went from that guy to persona non grata, which is, it's, uh, it's not Italian, but it's, uh, it's Latin. And it's, uh, you know, you're just not wanted anymore, right? So you went for that guy. And then uh, I went to go on talk shows. I've been on Alex Jones and some other crazy shows, you know, just to get the message out. And they try to drag you down rabbit holes, talk about January 6th, talk about this. I'm like, if I don't know about it, I'm not talking about it. I could pontificate about something all day long, but unless I was there, I'm not going to give you factual information. I'm just not going to talk about it at all. So I went there. When I started doing the talk shows, now the command's really mad at me because they're like, I can't believe you're out there talking to people. I'm like, I tell them, it's my words, not the DOD, not Texas Military Department, not use of SOC, not SOCOM. Okay. Well, they still got mad. And they still bellyache. They still complained. But the thing that really bothered me, there was only one thing that bothered me, was when I got my two, three letters that said, congratulations for your 39 years in service. And, uh, you know, there are very few people that make it to this stage, that retire after 20 years, blah, 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 blah. Sign, President of the United States, let's go, Brandon. Then the next one was from, uh, was from uh, Governor Abbott. It was, thank you for your Texas service on the border with Operation Lone Star. You, you know, great service. And then the next one was uh, from the Secretary of Defense, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense. I don't remember the name. Thank you for your service. All right, so get these three really eloquent things that I could post on my wall, right? Put it up there with the I love me stuff, which I don't have, but I have. One thing on my wall, I may tell you about it later. Uh, but anyway, I got it in a FedEx box sent to my to my to uh, where I was staying. There was no ceremony. There was no thank you. There was no, oh, by the way, you know, you're leaving in a week. You know, we'll throw you a party, which I don't, I don't need. I'd much rather just go on about my way like a cowboy riding into the sunset. But the getting this after this many years in a FedEx box shipped to me, like, I wonder what this is. This is from the government. Oh, well, thank you for your service. Oh, this is where we've got. And to me, I just, uh, I don't need anything more than that, but that was just kind of like the final little kick out the door, you know, when, uh, when the commands and all those people turn their backs on you. So what is on your wall? There's one card on my wall. Uh, I used to have, you know, in the beginning of all this, when I was searching for the uh, the secret of what the truest virtue was, I would just throw things up there. Here's a knife. Here's a couple medals. Here's my purple heart. Here's this. You know, this is the uh, medal you get for not moving fast enough. They call that the purple heart. You know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but uh, when I when I finally had that epiphany, it came on Christmas Eve, uh, twenty nineteen. Yeah, 
And it was a letter, and it was a, a Christmas card from a family. And it said, thanks, Doc, for sending our dad home to us. Alive. This kid we worked on, we opened his chest, we massaged his heart, we thought he was dead. He was hit by an RPG on the back door of, uh, a, of an MRAP. And I knew his family, that's the thing. So I could see his little girls writing this. <clears throat> and that, to me, means more than anything. Because he's home. Right? And that's why we do it. If you, if you don't feel that <laughs> right now, you don't have a heart. you got to feel it. Because that's the love I'm talking about right there. That little girl, she loved her daddy that much. Those, that daddy, he loved those kids so much that he was willing to lay down his life, John 15, 13, for his friends and his family, but also for each other, not because he hated, but because he loved. Next to him, behind him. And that little piece of cardboard that sits on that wall says it all. So when somebody picks it up and they see it, I'm like, Oh, don't ask me to read that. Please don't ask me to read that. I know those little girls. Now they're young ladies. And I'm like, ah, okay. Thanks for sending our daddy home to us, Doc. Beautiful thing. That's what it's all about. Right there. I'm so glad I asked that question. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that, that again, you know, that's, that's the love. And also to go back to the medicine side, medicine is such a beautiful you know, skill set that has been developed over, you know, these millennia. And, and I think, as you said, first do no harm. It's not demonizing medicine. Medicine has such powerful application after you've used prevention to keep people healthy. And, you know, obviously emergency medicine is where I've been. I mean, I'm not a trauma surgeon. The most I could do was cut a hole in someone's throat or stick a needle in their chest. But, um, you know, the lives that you see saved and that's what it's all about whether you're a, a soldier or a police officer or a firefighter or a dispatcher or corrections officer ultimately you may get that once in your whole career but i've always said that if you make difference in one single life your 10 20 30 years of service were worth it and that is such a beautiful story to round this off yeah 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 it's, it's worth it so for the 20 years that moment being downrange for that reason it was worth it being there yeah beautiful well i want to get to the, the closing question but just because you you kind of hinted at it i kind of hijacked the border conversation with the drug prohibition question just to mm -hmm. give give some platform as to you know what we see what you see what the men and women that you are serving alongside see if you want to just paint a picture of what is going on at the border so again the average Absolutely. person can understand that yeah, and just understand this. I'm not gonna. I'm not painting it from a political standpoint. I'm painting it. Here's the facts because I'm a fact-based based person. So these this is gonna be truths. The truth is there are six thousand some odd soldiers sitting on the border right now from the Texas National Guard with binoculars in their hands underneath shade during the day when it's 110 degrees at night with night vision, watching the Rio Grande River, the river that separates Mexico and Texas. They do eight-hour shifts times three around the clock, and they are. They're great Americans. They're doing what I did sitting on a border between North and South Korea in 1985, right? They're just watching the border and they're counting people as they come across, but they're looking for nefarious actors and there's sometimes they're rolling them up. We get into alter cases. We get occasional harassment fire from the South, 50 calibers. Sometimes they come across that, that, that water. And then the city of Roma, which is down by uh, Rio Grande city, uh, you know, some old guy was sitting in his chair at his house and a 50 cal came through the wall and hit him in the belly. 
It happens. I mean, that's that's the border. Uh, that's the reality of it. Uh, during that time, uh, right now, we're about twenty to 30,000 people coming across a week, uh, mostly in the Rio Grande sector, so the Rio Grande Valley, all the way down to uh, Eagle Pass and uh, Kenny County, which is over on the Big Bend, the big dip that goes down into Mexico. And then as you go out a little further west, Presidio, you'll see some uh, uh, bad uh, coyotes coming across carrying narcotics, guns, gun, gun running goes on all the time. Uh, there's been, that border has been crossed since the time of Pancho Villa, you know, smuggling cattle back and forth. All right, but now it's drugs. And, and the bad drugs typically come across, when I say bad, fentanyl and those kind of things, typically come across on the points of entry, the bridges coming across, which is controlled by the, you'd think would be controlled by the Border Patrol uh, uh, Custom Security, CBP, they should be up there doing that. We don't work those bridges. We're looking for the people sneaking across at night. My dog and I, he's in the back of my truck right now with me. We rolled up seven bad people down there one night. Uh, I just happened to be in the wood line. We're leaving myself, and it's about 2 in the morning. Dog starts growling. I got seven bad hombres at my feet. We roll them up. We take them in. Governor Abbott says, I want to meet that dog. He gets to meet the dog. He looks at me. He says, how many green berets we got on the border? I said, well, you just got one, sir. I said, you know the saying? The Texas Rangers had, if, if there's just one riot, there's one ranger. He said, yeah, I know that saying. I said, well, just one humanitarian crisis. I mean, one humanitarian crisis, one Green Beret. That's all you get. And so he uh, he ordered some more to come down there. And, and of course, then Tim and the guys showed up, and Tim kind of got mad at me. He's like, you just take me away from my business. But uh, I was like, it wasn't my fault, bro. But, uh, yeah, so that's what's going on down there. And, and we're – Doing other things, we 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 do interagency cooperation. So we're working with the Border Patrol, the uh, Texas Rangers, uh, the DPS, the Division of uh, Department of Public Safety, which would be like the state troopers, and then uh, various other agencies, all trying to stop that one needle in a haystack that potentially has a bomb attached to it, right? A nefarious actor. There's 130 nations represented coming across that border at any given time. We look at the Darien Gap down in Panama as the flow comes in, and we predict that at what point it's going to get to the border so that we can intercede. Because, uh, for example, in September of last year, the Dari uh, Del Rio was hit by 17,000 Haitians all at once within 24 hours. 17,000 showed up in town in Del Rio, the city. We held them there at the bridge um, until we could get some Border Patrol guys there to, uh, uh, you know, it's about 50 National Guard guys. and few hundred border patrol guys holding back 17,000 people uh, that were just going to disperse into the city. And so then DHS shows up, Department of Homeless Security. And uh, it's their job then to take them and preferentially send them back to, uh, you know, if they're, if they're a, a fighting age male and they have no family with them, the Remain of Mexico policy was in place. They should have went back. Family units, they won't turn down. This is a mom and kids and all that. And I got it. But that's that's what's going on right now. That's that's the facts. Uh, do I agree with it? Um, yeah, I mean we need to have a we need to have a controlled entry into this country. When you overwhelm it like this, it's uh, it's going to lead second and third order effects. If you look at what's going on in the country right now with just our food problems and being able to move things around and you're bringing in millions and millions of people a year now. The potential for famine has never been greater than any time in today. 
uh, we have to we have to really really think about this at the higher levels and i i do speak to the to the people in dc about this quite a bit uh, from my point of view on the border and uh, i want them to understand there are second and third order effects to this my family was half immigrants too i got it but we got we got to think about how we bring this in all at once yeah. Well, again, obviously, I'm I'm an immigrant myself, so it's a kind of unique perspective. You talked about Haitians, you know, down in South Florida here, Central South Florida. Obviously, that's that's a big port of entry for a lot of Haitian families. I, I actually took a cruise and uh, recently, and we went to Labadee in Haiti, and I was blown away how absolutely beautiful that country is but as one the the, the stand-up comedian on the sh- on the ship joked he's like well you saw jurassic park haiti you know this giant yeah, fence us around and it's true we did but that's still actually haiti the violence is just a you know a human perpetrated element of this gorgeous island so i think you know the the prevention conversation has to be had why what do we do to help create stability in these countries whether it's again removing you know prohibition laws or whatever it is to to stop creating consumers in the u.s that are empowering some of these these criminals but also you know i mean we can make these countries where i mean let, haiti should be an amazing tourist destination that you can pour a bunch of money in kind of stabilize make safe and they would not want to leave their country anymore because haiti is absolutely gorgeous but that being said right now where we are that's not on the lips of most people what do we need on the border to be able to to bolster and secure our borders well, if we look at you know what we what we've done in other countries, let's say I worked on the border between Jordan and Syria, and that and that's that's a expansive border that you could not put enough people to sit out there uh, in that in that 140 degree heat, much less I mean no shade there. And then in the two uh, refugee camps that sit on that border, seventy thousand in one camp, Hadlock uh, Rufban had about forty thousand in that camp of Syrian refugees that were coming down into Jordan. Um, what do they do there that was working? Because they were able to maintain that. And, it, and it's uh, you build camps on those borders and supply them with things that could actually help run it, but help to place these people so that the migration, that if it's going to take place, is controlled. Because if you just throw, throw everybody into the, to the country of Jordan all at once and went down to Oman, it would overwhelm it. The, the infrastructure would, would not be able to handle it. So if you're going to build something, you build something there that you can, you can actually self-sufficient um, camp to handle the flow, to handle who can come in and who can't. And, and, and look, if you're going to seek asylum, then you, you get in line, you seek asylum. Um, and then the other thing is you use virtual walls. Putting up real walls is, is important in certain places. You, you do need to have a wall to help funnel people to an area to where they could be then channelized. But you use virtual. So that's, that's, uh, you know, a dirigible up in the sky with a with a forward-looking infrared on it, and a and a sensor and a and a uh, ability to uh, to maneuver it. So some of these can move at forty degrees. You know, these pretty sensitive systems. We use them downrange all the time. Uh, ground sensors, cameras on the ground, bring the troops back so that you can use less troops on the border, so that you're not just burning these people out all the time. Because the state of Texas has a national guard. But it's slowly getting diminished, not only because people aren't taking shots, but also, I mean, they're going to stand to lose lose about half the guys on the border this year because they didn't take the shots. Totally different story, but you could do a lot more with a lot less, and and they and they could be doing this virtually. So there there's some some things we we have advised on. We have done the homework there and, and explained to the governor's office this is what needs to be done. 
but it, it's hard for one state to do that when you got that many miles of border to secure. Beautiful. Well, again, I appreciate your perspective because I mean, you know, the the eyes and ears of of so many people who be on this show, their their lens is unique, you know. And we hear all the kind of pontificating on on news channels from so called experts, but we very rarely hear the voices from the people on the ground. So I appreciate you that you kind of storytelling that element too. So you mentioned The Gates of Fire as a recommended book. The first of the closing questions, are there any other books that you'd love to, to recommend? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mark Twelhella. I don't know how to spell it, Twelhella, uh, The Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates. It's a real simple primer. It's, it's pretty, pretty narrow, I mean, pretty short read, uh, but easy read, but he, but he gives you a lot of references to go back and actually read in the Bible or read the John Knox stuff I talked about from Scotland and actually learn the history right so that's a that's a really good one and then uh, i would say honestly if you're going to study anything and if you really want to understand the good and the bad fight the yin and the yang if you really want to understand it from a western tradition not from an eastern because we think western go and study the difference between aristotle and plato and just i i challenge you to understand that real difference and don't just read somebody's interpretation of it Read that so you can get some context, but really read what they what they say, and just see the difference, and then compare that to Darwin versus uh, uh, we could use Newton. You know, somebody that's really based on science. We're talking about gravity, laws of thermodynamics. Read that stuff, and then it kind of gives you a big picture as this this uh, narrative versus truth fight that we're in. Because there's optics and there's reality. Reality is truth. Optics is narrative. We've got to get off the narrative fight with anybody that's in that fight. And when people operate in truth, and you and I can have a debate about something, we not agree, that's okay. We, we, our truth is our truth. But when we try to form narratives, we're pulling people off their truth, off their base, and, and, and that's where people can be swayed. That's where people could be uh, manipulated and then disenfranchised. Because the first rule of a Marxist or anybody, a tyrannical type government, is uh, is to demoralize that society, which leads to disenfranchisement, which leads to a, an, a, a, uh, an atmosphere that's ripe for, for unconventional warfare, for overthrowing a government, for all those things that could potentially go wrong that you may not want if you like your, the way your life is. Uh, look, we all just want joy. We all just want peace. Uh, and there are those people out there that are wolves. They're going to steal your joy. There's people like me, they're sheepdog, and we're going to protect it, right? Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, then, what about, same kind of question, what about a film and or documentary that you love? A film? Oh, I just watched Lonesome Dove for like the 19th time. That's a old cowboy movie uh, based on a series. Uh, there's a lot of cowboy wisdom in it. There's a lot of wisdom that I got growing up from just simple country people that uh, you can't match anywhere, uh, even with Plato and Aristotle. So uh, that's, a, that's a good one just for just wisdom. You know, it's, and it's, it's not even a true story. It's, uh, McMurtry wrote this book, uh, Going to Texas, but then it turned into a series. So that's, that's the uh, Dove, probably one of my favorites. And then uh, documentary. Mm. I think anything, you know, I, I study, I do documentaries based on what I'm working on. So I'm looking at like the narco traffic while I'm on the border. I'm looking at the narco series. If I found one that I, that I love more than anything else, no. no. I just, I, I, use, I use documentaries if I'm going to 
tell you anything. It's whatever that you're interested in. You're trying to study. You're trying to improve your your mindset. Uh, pick the thing that you you know what it is that you're you're studying. But no, I don't have one that particular. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I think that's another kind of revolution. I think podcasts have been a great medium, but also documentaries. You see some beautifully made, well thought out, well written, you know, films now out there that you know. If you, I mean, everything has an agenda. Some good, some bad. But if you can kind of watch two or three, and again, kind of where the Venn diagram meets, there's probably going to be a lot of truth right. there. Yeah, that's it. And and find the truth tellers out there. You know, somebody lives in my neighborhood, not too far away, about an hour away. You know, where you were saying agenda. I thought of Laura Logan, you know, she, she doesn't have an agenda, right? You know, I say that, um, and she's our neighbor and she's been over to where we work a few times and come in. But, you know, first time I met her, I was given a brief about the border and she came over and started getting into my chili about asking questions, said, who in the heck are you? And she goes, I'm Laura Logan. You don't know who I am? I said, never seen you. And so she got fired up and I mean, we went at it, my brother and sister, bam, bam, bam. But since then, We've learned to respect one another and uh, to debate in, in truth and love. And so with that, with that, um, there are people like that that, we, that I tend to follow more. You know? So it's those kind of people that are they, they're hard to talk to, I mean, believe me, but they, but they get the truth. And that's what I like. I like finding people that do truth. Uh, you, you'll, you'll just pick up so much more. Absolutely. Well, speaking of great people, um, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, you know, I, I would love to get. I don't know he'd do it. I would. Have you have you met with? Uh, Kevin Owens. Um, you know what? I reached out to Kevin. We actually had an interview set up, and then he got busy, and I haven't circled around again yet. So he's from Fieldcraft Survival. Yes, yeah. So Kevin and I worked together at Third Group. We were together. He was my 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 sniper instructor. Like he was, he, he specifically took uh, my, you know, he was he was my uh, Plato to me being Aristotle. I mean, he, he showed me how to run a rig. I mean, really awesome. Great guy, smart guy, uh, great story, great background. I don't want to give it away, but uh, Kevin Owens, Gilcast Survival, Green Beret, former Irish Army guy. Yeah, that's the guy to get on. Brilliant. Well, dynamic. If, if you can help me kind of reconnect then that'd be amazing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that'd be fantastic. I talk to him all the time. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress after such a you know story career so far? Well, it's like today. I'm I'm going to pick up a horse trader. I'm going to go move some horses, and I'm going to take them out to the ranch, and we're going to go uh, work some cattle. Not in the heat, but probably tomorrow morning. I get I'll get my rig and drive to Montana, and I'll work in the fall. Bring the the, the pairs down before the snow comes in. Uh, that's my decompression. It's what I live for. Um, I just uh, it's just a simple life. And I take my little black bag, and if somebody gets hurt, I just take my dad's old bag. I still have it, the black doctor bag, and uh, I'll go do a house call. And that, to me, uh, best time ever spent. You find out about people, you get in their home, you see, you look around, you see how they live, and you find out a lot, and you can make a difference. So for me, that's that's why getting out. But doesn't mean I can't cowboy and doctor at the same time. So when I think of community medicine, that's one element that I watched my father do with animals that you're, you know, you watched your father do with people that mm -hmm. we've lost. Like the person has to go to the doctor now. And yet 
that kind of house visit element, even through a paramedic size, there's many, many people where we've been able to mitigate something basic and they haven't yeah. had to get in the back of an ambulance and go to an ER and sit between, you know, a schizophrenic and, and a drunk, um, you know, and you're able to just leave them at home, you know, and then maybe connect them with their physician. They get prescribed something, it gets brought to them. And then, you know, there's no better healing element usually than someone's own home. So what's your perspective of of kind of refinding that kind of visiting doctor community element back into medicine? I think I, I'm going to say this. Yeah, I had this conversation just recently with another doc, an older guy, not my dad's age, but up there. He used to do house calls. Well, he said, it's coming back. He said, Pete, it's coming back. The concierge medicine was the kickoff. And that was about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit, a little bit more. Um, and that's, you know, they started on crew, not cruise ships, but on uh, resorts where you know you show up, and then there's some doc would show up there at your hotel, and then uh, then it's communities are doing that now. I think as we get away from the industrialized medicine model, uh, you know, there's probably three or four corporations that are out of Florida and New York that run most of the hospitals in the in the flyover states. Right? HRC is one I can think of that you know, runs locally where I'm at. Uh, when when you when you run it from a corporation from far away, they don't have a single bit of the flavor of what's going on in your community. And these doctors that sold out to that twenty years ago are regretting it now. I talked to them up on the border on the Red River, and they're just uh, this doc of this group of forty docs up there, and they're going to have to shut. Some of them are shutting their doors uh, because they just can't keep up with the, with the requirements of not only the government stepping in with Obamacare. Everybody thinks Obamacare was great. Let me explain something to you. When you run something by the government, they can't run their own selves. Now, how in the world do you expect them to come out into the rest of the world and run something effective? They don't. That's why I said getting rid of Army medicine. I said that in the beginning. I'll stand by it. I've briefed Congress on it, individuals. It's, it's inefficient. It's inefficient. And when they add all the extra things that you got to do in order just to, to checklist your patient that says you've seen them, it takes away the human side. When I went to my VA rating to get my 100%, I had a doctor sitting in there, a, a government doctor, who was going to do this. He looked at the computer the whole time, and he typed and typed and typed, and never once said a word to me or looked at me when he said anything. Just ask questions, right? Just ask questions. Type, type, type. And uh, I, I finally looked at him and said, "Are you planning on putting your hands on me, or maybe uh, listen to me with a stethoscope in this physical you're doing there, doc?" Now, he didn't know I was a doctor. I didn't say anything. He just figured I was just another army nug. And he said, no, I'm going to keep doing this. So he kept doing it. And then he asked me, now, what happened when you got shot in your left arm? And I said, well, well, what is, because he's trying to assess whether I need a disability. And I said, well, I got some radiculopathy in my left, you know, hand down here in this uh, fourth and fifth digit. And he looks at me and goes, oh, that's a very big word for you, Dr. Google. How do you read Dr. Google last night? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, radiculopathy, that's a big word. I said, well, yeah, I learned it in med school. And he laughed. He, yeah, okay. You see, the personal part was taken out of medicine. And I'm sorry, that's just one interaction. I know this guy was being a dickhead, you know, and I, I complained about it. I went to a new doc, but that slowed my VA process down quite a bit. But, you know, I'm sorry. I can't take certain things, you know, make fun of me. Because what do they do? Their poor guy that comes in was a, a private that needs the same kind of help. You know, here I am, a Lieutenant Colonel Green Beret retired. You know, that's how you treat people. That's not going to work. Uh, but that's the, the depersonalization of medicine. So it's coming. House calls are coming. That kind of stuff is coming back. 
Beautiful. And if not, come come and visit me in Central Texas. I'll take care of you. There we go. The rock and some duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Rock and duct tape. <laughs> so just just quickly, because you talked about about riding and you've got your dog in the back. What ha, have you identified the the healing element of that equine relationship and that canine relationship? Now you transitioned out. Oh yes, yes. You know, I I. I this this guy here knows me better than anybody. You know, I, I, he's known me for seven years of his eight year life, and uh, you know that. And then going up to my horse, and I've got a beautiful uh, Moro is called, which is a Mustang white kind of dapple, uh, gentle as can be. Everything is simple. Everything is easy with these creatures. They just love you for what you are. It's unconditional. They'll do anything to make you happy. And uh, and there is there's a lot of therapy with that. A lot. Yeah. And I, I recommend it for anybody, you know, you can't get a working dog like me. Uh, there's adoption programs or uh, equine programs. They're out there. You know, we've thought about starting one. It's just a lot of work to start one, but there are, they are out there and all around the country. So if you can get out there and do it, I suggest it. Absolutely. All right. Well, for the very last question, if people are listening now, you mentioned about being on Telegram. So where, where are the best places to learn more about you and or connect with you on social media? Yeah, so Telegram is, uh, you know, it's Dr. It's G, you know, Dr. Pete Chambers. You can look me up on there, uh, and I can send you the, the link. You can post it with your stuff there. Um, and then I have a website. It uh, was for a book that I was writing, and, and I've changed the direction of the book because of the way things have changed lately. But uh, um, it's uh, www.fullspectrumamerican.com. Uh, that was created for a book, but now we're going into uh, what I think is going to be the Nuremberg trial series. And so when we get there, uh, you'll be able to follow a little bit more on that. So I don't want to give too many secrets away on that because that's something coming up pretty big. Uh, but yeah, those two places, Telegram and, uh, and that uh, Full Spectrum American. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Pete, I just want to say thank you so much. We've been all over the place but i mean to to yeah, yeah. to get your perspective on so many these different angles and different lenses that you have through your career and hear them from the horse's mouth from the obviously you know mandates and the border through to you know some of the the horrendous things and some of the beautiful things that you witnessed in combat it's been such an incredible conversation so i just want to thank you so so much for your time today yeah and thank you you know i i i i, I relate to a lot of what you say i think it's just because whether you had a uniform on for a, a fire department or a military, you still have some of the same experiences, um, different different kind of battlefield, but same experiences. Yeah, we relate. Really like